You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 533. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at former APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 18th of August, 2022. In today's episode, A Southwest flight attendant suffers a back injury during a firm landing. The final report on why a Ryanair Boeing 737 lost cabin pressure heading towards Frankfurt. More news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 533 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And joining me today from his studio... Professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330 A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and hi, Liz. Great to be back on the show. Uh, is this when I should press that button no pilot should ever push? No. No, don't press that. No, 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 no. no, no. Yeah. Are you sure? Only, uh, yeah. only one every 10 shows. Please. <laughs> and about 100. 100, yeah, that's better. All oh, right. Okay. And uh, also joining us from a place to stand and a place to grow from our studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director, it's Liz Piper. Hello, everyone. Back from the great North Woods. Here I am. So happy that you're back with us and you're going to be talking to me. I'm happy to, to be back to you. In my ear and uh, helping helping guide us through this podcasting journey. So, uh, Hi, everybody. See you later. All right. Thanks, Liz. And uh, we also should mention that uh, we're expecting... Uh, Nick Camacho to join us while the show is in progress. And this is going to be a two-parter. Steph will not be able to join us today, but she will be joining us tomorrow. So stay tuned uh, for details of when we're recording the second part. And why isn't she joining us there, Jeff? She's not joining us because she has a lot of work to do. If you're watching the video, yeah. That's uh, Steph holding up, uh, supposedly holding up these uh, things that she has to dictate. And notes. Notes and stuff like that that she has to do. So, 
Uh, I'm not sure we're, we're really buying it, but uh, that's what that's the story that she's given us. In reality, she should be holding up a bottle of beer because that's what she's really that's doing. That's probably really what she's doing, yes. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we'll miss her today, but we're going to have her here tomorrow. So without further ado, let's move on to the news. Stand by for news. All right, let's start off with this in our news notebook. Uh, preliminary report, missing pilot en route to Raleigh-Durham International. On July, this is the uh, National Transportation Safety Board Aviation Accident Preliminary Report. On July 29, 2022, about 1404 Eastern Daylight Time, Akasa 212-200, November 497CA was substantially damaged when it was involved in an accident near Rayford, North Carolina. The pilot in command was not injured. The second in command sustained fatal injuries during the subsequent diversion to the Raleigh-Durham International Airport, RDU, in Durham, North Carolina. The airplane was operated as a Title 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 91 skydiving flight. The pilot in command reported that they flew two skydiving runs, then descended to the Rayford West Airport, November Romeo 20, Rayford, North Carolina, to pick up a third group of skydivers. The second in command was flying the approach to November Romeo 20 and was on heading altitude and airspeed until the airplane descended below the tree line and dropped. Both pilots called for a go around maneuver, which the second in command initiated. However, before the SIC could arrest the airplane's sink rate and initiate a climb, the right main landing gear impacted the runway surface. The pilot in command assumed the flight controls upon the airplane reaching 400 feet AGL, above ground level, then flew a low approach over November Romeo 20 to have airfield personnel verify the damage. The personnel subsequently called the pilot in command to let him know that they had recovered the fractured uh, right main landing gear on the runway. The pilot in command directed the second in command to declare an emergency and request a diversion to Raleigh-Durham for landing. While en route to RDU, the crew coordinated with air traffic control operations and their customer and planned their approach and landing at RDU with the uh, SIC, the second in command, responsible for communicating with air traffic control while the pilot in command flew the airplane. The pilot in command reported that there was moderate turbulence during the flight. And then about 20 minutes into the diversion to Raleigh-Durham, after conducting approach and emergency briefings, the second-in-command became visibly upset about the hard landing. Uh, review of preliminary air traffic control radio communication information from the FAA indicated that the SIC had been commuting, communicating with air traffic control up to that point in the flight. In his final transmission, the second-in-command acknowledged a course heading from air traffic control. The pilot command described that about this time, the second in command opened his side cockpit window and, quote, may have gotten sick. The pilot in command took over radio communications and the second in command lowered the ramp in the back of the airplane, indicating uh, that he felt like he was going to be sick and he needed air. The pilot in command stated that the second in command uh, then got up from his seat, removed his headset, apologized, and departed the airplane via the amp uh, the aft ramp door. 
The pilot in command stated that there was a bar one could grab about six feet above the ramp. However, he did not witness the second in command grab the bar before exiting the airplane. The pilot in command then turned the airplane to the right to search for the second in command and a radio transmission to air traffic control about one and a half minutes after the second in command's radio acknowledgement of the course heading, the pilot command notified air traffic control that his co-pilot had departed the airplane without a parachute. The PIC proceeded on course to Raleigh-Durham, where he performed a low approach and then emergency landing. Upon landing, the airplane departed the right side of the runway and came to a rest upright in the grass. Post-accident examination of the airplane revealed substantial damage to the right main landing gear, landing gear fittings, and the airframe structure where the fittings attach. The airplane was retained for further examination. So that is the preliminary report, which we'll have in sad. our show notes. Very sad. It is very sad. Um, it's, uh, you know, again, we, we talked about it on uh, the previous episode where, you know, I guess the last couple of episodes where we thought, that can't be what happened. He must have accidentally fallen out of the airplane, but... No, it's looking more and more now like he decided that that was the best course of action, which, of course, um, is really sad because that is not the way to handle the situation. Um, you know, it's not the end Permanent of the Permanent solution to a temporary problem. No, there's very little you can do in the way of making mistakes in an airplane that's going to end your flying career right there and then. Uh, so... You know, uh, we've all done hard landings, and the gear m might have uh, already had a bit of damage, and, um, you know, it, was, it just gave up on that particular hard landing. So, um, And so he recognized that the approach wasn't going well because he, as well as the captain, uh, stated that they were going to do a go-around. So, you know, it wasn't like he was completely out of control when he made that approach. He... May have had some time to think about it, and um, you know he might have felt that that was the end for him. And but mm -hmm. it's only the end with that company. You know, you're not like career is going to grind to a halt. But having said that, because there still is a little bit of doubt that he might have gone back there just to be sick out of the the mm. rear door. True. Uh, I would still like to have that. You know, an open question because uh, I think to. Um, to say it, it was uh, suicide is, is still a stretch. We don't know what was in the guy's mind, and he may have just missed his handhold there. That's um, true. Good point. So, um, yeah, but incredibly sad. And I just feel sorry for his family as well, who must be going through hell right oh, now. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine. Can't imagine. Very young. A young man uh, with uh, yep. his entire life ahead of him. And... Uh, that's just a, a sad situation for sure. It is. Absolutely. All right. Um, another preliminary report, or is this? No, a final report from the NTSB, uh, National Transportation Safety Board. Um, this is from Aviation Herald by uh, Simon. A Southwest Airlines Boeing 737-700 registration November 480 Whiskey November performing flight 2029 from Oakland to Santa Ana, California, with 137 passengers and five crew, landed on Santa Ana's runway 20 right, when upon touchdown, a flight attendant immediately felt pain in her back and couldn't move. The aircraft rolled out with, uh, without further incident. On August 6th, 2022, the NTSB released their final report, concluding 
The probable cause of the accident was a flight attendant received a serious injury during landing. A flight attendant was injured when the flight 2029 landed at John Wayne, Orange County Airport, Santa Ana, California. According to the flight crew, they were flying a visual approach to runway 20 right at Santa Ana. They were aiming for the touchdown zone due to its short runway and trying to fly the aircraft onto the runway with minimal floating. However, it ended up being a firm landing. Shortly after exiting the runway, the flight crew were informed that the B-position flight attendant, seated in the aft jump seat, had injured her back on landing and required medical assistance. According to the flight attendant, after securing the galley and cabin for landing, she sat down in her jump seat, secured her seatbelt harness, got into the brace position. She indicated that the plane hit the ground with such force that she thought that the plane had crashed. She immediately felt pain in her back, neck, and she could not move. Paramedics evaluated her and transported her to a local hospital where she was later diagnosed with a compression fracture to her T3 vertebrae. Yikes. That is uh, serious. Um, doesn't have any, uh, in, in our reporting, even the final report that I could see, uh, there was nothing uh, that talked about the actual g-forces um I mean, like how firm is firm on the on the landing no i thought that was a bit dis- disappointing because and it's the only way we can judge really uh, to the accuracy of the uh indication that it was a, a hard landing uh, the crew obviously didn't think it was the pilots i'm talking now didn't think it was that hard because they didn't call it a hard landing and, of course, um, there was only one person on the airplane that was injured. I don't know. How many were there? Were there any passengers? Uh, yeah, yes. 141. So <laughs> 141 other people um, didn't get injured. So, uh, And there's no indications of, um, you know, overhead lockers bursting open or um, uh, oxygen masks falling down that would occur with a really hard landing. Like so, my landings are pretty much. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. Well, there are plenty of people who have done it. Um, the the back is a vulnerable thing, though. And uh, I know because I've had back problems for many years. And sometimes the most benign movement uh, can cause you an awful lot of injury. But to actually have a, a compression fact fracture... Um, I don't know. I, well, I wonder if they were able to establish when that fracture occurred. Um, that's the, my only other question in my mind. So I, I have absolutely no doubt that um, she will be well compensated for this uh, injury. Um, but um, th- there are just a few questions in my mind. Yeah, I agree. Uh, ma- many good points made there, Nick. The other thing I'm wondering about, in the narrative on the final report here, it said that she secured the galley, went back to her jump seat in the in the aft of the aircraft, and assumed the brace position. I'm thinking, mm. well, why would you assume the brace position? That's something you do when you are preparing for a crash landing. Um, I th- I think if you're in a um, rearward sa- facing seat, I don't know, is it rearward facing or forward facing? It's forward facing. Um, yeah. Okay. And in, in that case, I I was going to say a rearward facing sit- seat, a normal bolt upright sitting position would be appropriate for a sort of bracing position. But um, yeah, the sort of brace position we imagine it might be briefed slightly differently for them i'm not sure now again i have to say maybe there is a seat maybe she's not in the it it talked about her being 
securing the galley and cabin for landing. She sat down in her jump seat, secured. I, well, I don't know why, but I thought she was in the back. But oh, the, no, it says in the aft jump seat. Okay, in the paragraph yeah. above. So it was the aft uh, back. So I'm again, I'm pretty sure. Uh, if you're a seven three seven person out there, and and I'm wrong about that, make sure you. Uh, correct us, but I think it's yeah. a forward-facing jump seat. And also, is there a particular uh, landing position that uh, the cabin crew um, adopt, which would be the equivalent of a brace position? I don't know. Uh, that the passengers would might adopt, or is it slightly different for you guys? Uh, that would be a question I would love to know the answer Yeah, I would like to know that as well. And, the, and I can say that, and I've never flown... Uh, into John Wayne in an airliner um, at the controls. I've I've done it in this. Well, I've done it in the simulator, uh, but uh, and I've I've witnessed uh, a few landings at John Wayne um, in the jump seat of a 757. Uh, it it definitely is a short. It's a very challenging uh, airport because it has very short runways, and. Um, but uh, so, you know, it's it's one of those things where sometimes they may even make um, an announcement uh, regard or, you know, public announcement to uh, or a public address PA to um, kind of make sure that everybody knows that it's a shorter runway than normal. And it's going to be most likely a firmer touchdown than that they're used to. And you really have to, you know, slam the brakes on to try to, you know, get the thing stopped as quickly as possible. So maybe... You know, when hearing that, maybe the flight attendants are briefed that since it could be a firm landing, you know, assume a brace position. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's just a possibility, I guess. But mm. uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, Steph. Steph will be able to provide all the assistance you'll need. Yeah, definitely a new client for Steph. Yeah, she's uh, our. Of course, I'm. Uh, I'm very unhappy for the cabin crew because uh, mm-hmm. she said. And she couldn't move, and uh, yeah. paramedics had to take her to hospital, and that's a nasty, pardon me, injury. So, uh, hope she gets better soon. Um, yeah. A nasty burp as well. By you. the way, if a seven <laughs> uh, five can get in there, okay. You, presumably, it would be pretty easy for a seven three. I mean, seven five's got to have a lot. Is heavier, bigger, got to have a yeah. larger landing distance. But it has really, really good short field performance. Um, oh, not, does it? Uh, not sure how it compares it's got with a the hook on the back or something. So, yeah, yeah, a couple. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got great brakes. It's a, a very impressive. Oh, right. <laughs> very okay. Cool. cool. Very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. Very impressive. Okay. Let's move on to the next item in our notebook here. Um, final report. Another final report. Uh, not from the National Transportation Safety Board this time. Um, it is from the BFA. And uh, let's see, accident. Ryan Air, Boeing 737-800 near Frankfurt on July 13, 2018. Uh, they had a loss of cabin pressure, 33 passengers feeling unwell. Uh, the registration on this 737-800 was Echo India, Echo November Mike, performing flight 7312 from Dublin, Ireland to Zadar, or Zadar, Croatia. I've never even heard of that place. Mm. No. With 190 passengers and six crew, was en route at flight level 370, about 120 nautical miles southwest of Frankfurt, Hahn, Germany, still in French airspace, when the crew initiated an emergency descent to flight level 080, 
approximately 8,000 feet. The passenger oxygen masks were released. The crew reported a number of passengers felt unwell with ear pain and nausea. A few passengers were bleeding out of their ears. The aircraft landed safely on Frankfurt Hans runway 3 about 3-5 minutes, 35 minutes after leaving flight level 370. Germany's police reported that the passengers there had heard a bang sound, not all too loud, and then the passenger oxygen masks came down and the crew initiated a descent. The passengers complained about pain in their ears and nausea. 33 passengers were treated by the I heard that. A passenger reported following a bang sound that released the oxygen masks and the descent. Uh, passengers were feeling unwell. Okay, again, another. I've got that way graph up, that. Jeff. If you want the graph. Okay, yeah, Liz is showing the um, graph, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. You just leave it up there, Liz. Okay. Okay. Um, the airport reported several occupants on board of the aircraft complained about health issues and were taken care of by doctors and paramedics. Several ambulances took passengers to hospitals. The air, airline reported an in-flight depressurization in line with standard operating procedures. The crew released the uh, passenger oxygen masks and initiated a controlled descent. The aircraft landed safely. The passengers disembarked. A small number of passengers received medical attention as a precaution. Hotel accommodation was authorized. However, there was a shortage of hotel rooms available. The passengers are to be taken to Zadar, or Zadar by a replacement aircraft the following day. A replacement... 737-800 came the following day, and they got there about 13 hours uh, late. On uh, January 18th, 2019, Germany's uh, BFU reported in their July bulletin that the aircraft suffered a rapid loss of cabin pressure, causing minor injuries to 33. (laughs) Again, restating. Um, Okay, according to the flight data recorder, the outflow valve opened from 18 degrees to a fully open position at 104 degrees within eight seconds. The cabin altitude was 7,925 feet initially, and two seconds later, the cabin altitude warning activated. The crew donned their oxygen masks and began working uh, the memory items for cabin pressure loss. The master caution light activated. The crew observed the cabin altitude climbing at 4,000 feet per minute. The crew switched the outflow valve into manual control and commanded it to a closed position of 9.3 degrees when the cabin climbed through 14,830 feet 32 seconds after the outflow valve opened. That's an average rate of climb of 12,950 feet per minute. The crew initiated an emergency descent. During the descent, while still working the related checklist, the crew commanded the outflow valve to completely close. Descending through flight level 156, 15,600 feet, the first officer pilot monitoring observed the cabin altitude at 25,000 feet, and then later 24,000 feet. Okay, let me just say that again. So the airplane itself is uh, below 16,000 feet. The first officer thought he saw the cabin altitude at 25,000 feet and later 24,000 feet. Um Okay. After leveling off at 9,000 feet, the captain handed controls to the first officer and found the cabin altitude indicating 33,000 feet and stated, it's not working. We have to open the outflow valve completely to, de- to depressurize. The BFU mentioned that according to the flight data recorder, the cabin altitude at that time was 7,000 feet below mean sea level. So Ouch. negative 7,000 feet 
MSO. Yeah, so they've overpressurized the cabin. Yeah, they had the thing, the valve was completely closed. Yep, and they're pumping air in and none's going out. Just like a balloon. You know, you, yep. you pump an air into a balloon Boom. and it's, yeah. And the only thing that's stopping it from going pop is the uh, safety relief valve. Exactly. Presumably. Yep. Uh, the uh, cabin pressure differential had reached the maximum of 8.72 PSI for four um, minutes, 20 seconds. After the outflow valve was opened, the cabin altitude settled at 5,000 feet. Now, I'm just realizing now I've I've avoided um, to do something um, accidentally that uh, um, Nick Camacho wanted me to um, do while we were talking about this. So I apologize, uh, Camacho. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it now. Ah, oh yeah, Delta P. Yeah, we're uh, we're talking <laughs> about Delta P here. The uh, difference in we are uh, indeed pressure, and, and it can be a little confusing. So it might be worth going through it uh, and bit by bit, try mm-hmm. and work out what, what happened. Right. Um, let's see. Neil's asking what the normal psi is for a cabin. Um. The normal PSI for, I think, is probably around seven uh, on this particular jet. I'm not sure exactly, uh, Neil. Um, but it's nowhere, you know, 8.72 is the maximum PSI. And, and as uh, Captain Nick just mentioned, uh, at that point, if it gets to a pressure differential above that, then there are safety valves that go, the overpressure valves will open up. Because if you don't do that, uh, just like a balloon, you keep blowing air into a balloon and eventually it's going to pop. You don't want the airplane fuselage to pop. Not a good thing. And uh, let's see. The, uh, on January 22nd, 2019, Germany's BFU released their interim report. Checks of the aircraft and outflow valve did not establish any evidence of a me- mechanical malfunction of the outflow valve. The cabin pressure controller, number one, revealed a message, no auto fail. On uh, August of 2022, August 10th, so just recently, uh, the German BFU released their final report, concluding the probable cause of the occurrence were the occurrence was caused by a fully opened outflow valve commanded by the environmental control system during cruise at flight level 370. Okay, so one of the cabin altitude controllers decided to, they had some kind of a bad indication or sensing or something and decide, excuse me, decided to open the outflow valve completely. And that's why all of a sudden the cabin altitude started climbing. Um, The malfunction was caused by a single event upset in one of the cabin pressure controllers. Um, Let's see. So it was CPC cabin pressure controller. Number two Uh, had an incorrect calculation of the reference value of the outflow valve position, which caused the opening of the outflow valve and subsequent rapid decompression. Flight crew was forced to use their oxygen mask. They closed the outflow valve manually and the cabin pressure began to increase. Subsequently, an emergency descent was still manually, with still manually closed outflow valve was conducted. For several minutes, the cabin was pressurized with the maximum allowable differential pressure. After leveling off from the emergency descent, the flight crew opened the outflow valve completely and a second rapid decompression occurred. 
The injuries the passengers suffered were most likely caused by the repressurization phase between the two decompressions. So on the chart there, you can see uh, the first indication of the outflow valve um, opening up and uh, the cabin. That's when it does that big jump and the red line, which is uh, cabin altitude. Uh, I'm sorry, the red line is the pressure and the pale blue line is the cabin altitude yes where they come nearly come together yeah they're going on the opposite or they're coming yeah. actually toward each other so pressure's decreasing which means cabin altitude is going up mm -hmm. it's increasing right and it's a pretty rapid the, it's a very sharp yes. uh drop uh, so yeah the alpha valve just went woo, open and then it levels off because presumably that's when they take manual control of the outflow valve and close it mm-hmm and then they start to repressurize the airplane. And notice the, high, the, the top blue line is them going down the hill. So mm -hmm. they're going down the hill at the same time they're repressurizing the airplane. But they, they repressurize it all the way down to, what, seven, minus 7,000 feet. Yes. So, and that's when the red line steadies out because the safety valve is now stopping the airplane from being damaged by overpressurization. Exactly. And then I assume uh, when that red line starts to plummet and the bottom blue line starts to climb, that mean is when they realize they need to open right. some, some and the they, outflow valves. And they did it very rapidly again. <laughs> yeah. Not as rapidly yeah. as the cabin pressure controller that in, in, in error opened it up really quickly, uh, but almost that fast. No. And, of course, it's going from a very high negative pressure to quite a low, uh, sorry, very high positive pressure, to quite mm -hmm. a low negative pressure. And that, it, when it comes to your inner ear, is going to be a big pressure change because pressure is felt greatest around uh, at the atmosphere, uh, sorry, around sea level. Mm -hmm. uh, up at high level, uh, the changes in atmospheric pressure uh, can feel uh, less, but uh, it, you, you know, get the worst um down here uh, around ground level, which is where they're missing about with it. Yep. So the big question is, Jeff, why did they do that? Well, Captain Nick, um, <laughs> they kind of uh, addressed this as well, and they uh, said that uh, one of the problems here was the mounting location and design of the digital selector panel of the digital cabin pressure control systems in the cockpit made it more difficult for the flight crew to correctly recognize the conditions of the cabin pressure altitude and monitor it. The location at the right overhead panel made it necessary for both pilots to actively focus their attention upward in order to monitor the relevant instruments. The BFUs of the opinion that in the situation caused by the rapid decompression, it is highly likely that instruments were not in the direct line of sight of the pilots and it received, they received less attention than the ones directly on the panel ahead of them. Partial condensation on the oxygen masks caused by the rapid decompression made visual verification of the cabin pressure altitude more challenging. Now we're showing uh, in the video here uh, the um, cabin pressure differential gauge and the cabin altitude um, gauge. And it's a, a two instruments uh, in concentric circles. Uh, the smaller of the two is the actual cabin altitude with a very a small needle. And then the big needle on the outer circumference is the actual uh, delta P, the differential pressure. And I think that what they're surmising that, um, well, here in this next sentence here, 
Um, it has to be assumed that the panel design was several combination of analog instruments. So there's a combination of digital instruments and analog instruments. And the, what we're looking at now are the analog um, did not contribute positively to the situational awareness of the pilots. It has to be assessed as critical that the design of the cabin pressure altitude indication allows the needle to migrate into this scale from high altitudes. Aircraft are commonly not operated with cabin pressure altitudes below uh, mean sea level, but the cabin pressure altitude indication should not allow, allow any misinterpretation. So I think what they're trying to say, Captain Nick, and I'll see if you agree, I think that because of the fact that they had closed the alpha valve and the airplane was under positive pressure, the obviously the cabin altitude continued to to decrease, and not so on the scale that smaller scale that little needle gets up to zero, and then I think the the way this is designed, it, the needle continued to move counterclockwise or anticlockwise, and could be misinterpreted to mean that the cabin altitude now is in the high uh, altitude levels. And that might be why uh, both pilots thought they saw a cabin altitude of uh, 25,000, 30,000, 35,000. You know, that, that's the only thing that it, I... It's certainly, I, I think that there's a good chance that um, they didn't realize that they'd overpressure the airplane because of that needle. But I'm... Uh, the next picture for me really is the is the gotcha, and there it is. Now there's your little uh, needle indicating that the cabin is at five thousand feet, but the big needle, which is actually indicating the pounds per square inch of pressure in the cabin, is reading on the yellow part of that gauge very close to the absolute maximum. But if you look, it's also registering against the uh, inner scale the cabin altitude scale and if you looked at that through misty goggles trying to work out what the hell is going on uh, and you've got a very odd indication there because you'd normally never see those needles in those positions that's where i think they made the mistake of thinking that the cabin altitude was up at thirty-eight thousand feet or thirty-seven thousand feet because they were misinterpreting that that big needle for the cabin altitude indicator and not the pressure indicator that it, it was. And I think it's just a poor design of, of gauge uh, from that point of view. I agree. Uh, and, and I point out, well, actually, it's not me. It's the, um, the inquiry points out that um, in the last 24 years, there have been 35 cases with pressure loss on board of transport aircraft. Um, all of them have resulted, I presume they, they mean the 737s. I don't know if that they haven't made that clear to me. Uh, all of them resulted in emergency descents. It was possible in one case only, in one case only, to re-establish cab cabin pressure. It has to be assumed that in the other 34 cases, the environmental control system redundancy had not been sufficient to prevent a rapid decompression. Um, so it, it's just um, an indication to me that uh, um, had they sort of assumed, okay, we've got a, a depressurization, let's go down, um, without uh, perhaps trying to mess around with the outflow valves until they got themselves established at ten thousand feet and look, because that's safe if you, mm -hmm. as long as you've. As long as you've got outside pressure coming into the aircraft, 10,000 feet is fine. And then you can troubleshoot all with your 
oxygen masks off uh, to your heart's content. Right. But trying to trying to during the descent, trying to troubleshoot and fix the problem, I think was probably making their life just too hard, and which is why they might have misinterpreted these instruments and mm -hmm. made a, a, a very clumsy attempt to. Uh, repressurize the airplane they're already in an emergency descent get that out of the way and then take a look at what the problem is uh, that was you know my yeah. main thought with this i agree and uh, i haul boxes in our live audience says i've seen several crews wrongly manipulating the outflow valves in the sim either applying reverse logic for closing or opening the outflow valves or mistaking differential with cabin altitude yeah um yeah, it's not not a good design. And even in an airplane such as uh, MD-88, I had a situation where we were having some trouble with uh, cabin pressurization. And it's really, really easy to can, kind of get a little confused or get things backwards with, okay, are we supposed to be closing or opening? the? You know, it's in, in, while your ears are like doing crazy things and you're trying to keep the cabin altitude from, you know, getting too high and at the same time trying to drop the real uh, airplane altitude to a lower level so that you can, you know, equalize the pressures and be safe. As Nick mentioned, you know, if you're, if you're at 10,000 feet or below, you're going to be fine. Um, but it, it, it gets really, it's one of those things I think that most of us dread most, or one of the things that maybe not the most dreaded, but it's definitely on my list of high thing, you know, high on the list of my personal things where I don't want to see it. I don't want to see a a pressurization issue because when you have to start manipulating the uh, the outflow valve. In fact, in my situation, we weren't too high. We were descent. We were uh, departing out of Atlanta, and there was some kind of an issue with the cabin pressure controller. We had to switch to manual mode. We have two auto controllers, and they both said, "Yeah, forget it. We're not doing it." Oh, uh, we are uh, now in manual mode, and I was uh, the pilot flying. He was the pilot. Um, monitoring and so he was trying to work the checklist and the alpha valve and i could just tell that whatever he was doing was not working was going wrong and uh, i finally had to give him the airplane and i had to work the controller to get i mean the manual uh, alpha valve position to try to get everything under control and then as as we got below ten thousand feet or at at ten thousand feet i just opened the darn thing up and then thought okay now we don't have to mess with it anymore we're just unpressurized but it's very confusing. I guess that's my point. And then when you throw in a, an, an analog gauge with that kind of design, I'm sure that they were thinking, well, we don't have a lot of room in the panel to put all this instrumentation. So we're going we're gonna to be really clever and combine these two indications into one instrument. And it's been that way for, as I said, the 727, I think it was the same uh, kind of gauge. Probably the Neil's same exact Neil's got a good gauge. point here, though, Jeff. Uh, Neil Lawrence says, uh, yes, it's not as if even making the needles different colors would be difficult. Um, yeah. So help yeah, a bit, I think. It, it, this, uh, I don't know, because I haven't actually seen 737 cockpits that often. But I mm -hmm. wonder how much of this is legacy early 737 technology mm. that has been carried on through all the various modifications and various uh, marks yep. uh, until we've actually got what should be a very modern and advanced airplane, the 800 series, mm -hmm. but it's still got um, sort of hangovers from the old days, you know, uh, that they don't really want to try to modify because, you know, as they did with MCAS, they don't want to have to retrain people to 
fly the latest version of the 737. But on the other hand, you know, might be nice to start with the clean slate and redesign some parts of the aircraft so that it was more up to date. Exactly. I think we could all agree with that. Okay. I was trying to get IO boxes to come up with the memory drill because he reckons he knows where it is. Three without delay, descended the lowest. Oh, safe here we go. No, sorry, that's one, I think. Okay. And that's emergency descent. I can't see two, <laughs> but um, that's three. You just got to know with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I think he's forgotten two. Oh, ah. Okay. His memory's failing him. I am uh, taking a power cable here um, and re positioning Where are you going to stick it, Jeff? I'm going to stick it in this light <laughs> uh, to make sure that my light stays on because it's a, it was operating on battery. Okay. Yeah, so... Oh, there's no, there's oh, number there two. There's, there's two. It, 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 oh, we shit. both pressing the button, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, one was Don Oxymas set regulators to 100%, established crew communications without... Delay, descend to the lowest safe altitude mm -hmm. or 10,000 feet, which is higher. Sounds okay, well, that, that doesn't involve any messing about with outflow valves, does nope. it? So, um, yeah, yeah I think that was probably a good idea yeah. just to do that. Absolutely. And, and then, then sort it out when you're Sort it out when safe. you, yeah, as you said, you can take the mask off and the goggles off and say, you know, the old winding the watch or smoking the cigarette or whatever. <laughs> Whatever thing you oh. want to say. Oh, apparently it does in the next step. We're getting these steps in slow oh, time. We're still, <laughs> I-Hall Boxes is still, you know, frantically <laughs> he's typing. He's still scratching his head and working it out. <laughs> All right, don't worry about it. Okay. Um, so. Now over to Captain Nick's item. Okay. Now we're going to go to this item uh, that you added to our no uh, notebook, news notebook. And uh, it has to do with uh, chronic problems with flight training in the RAF. So I'm going to hand it over to you, sir. You have the uh, comment. Yeah, this, this is interesting because uh, not only um, because we found about it before it came out in the newspapers. Uh, I don't know if you remember last show I mentioned that the, the four instructors had uh, who walked into a bar had uh, gone back to their old training base 40 years after to um, have a few beers and um, and look around. Uh, and we had a bit of a chat with... Um, <laughs> the, that was the, uh, the joke, the, right? Was that the punchline? Yeah. That's it, yeah. Four instructors walk into a bar? No, wait. Yeah. That's not even funny, Nick. <laughs> even with the rim shot. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to yeah, interrupt. Nice, nice rim shot. There. And <laughs> uh, we were chatting to some of the students who, would, who explained to us that they, you know, these four guys are called holdies because they're on holding patterns uh, because the training system has got some major, major delays. Anyway, I won't go uh, into exactly what they said because I don't want them to uh, feel like they've uh, let the side down. But then the, the news broke um, and it came through on Sky News and, and later BBC um, saying that there, there has been acknowledged um, that there is a major problem with training RAF pilots at the moment and that uh, the training pipeline has uh, got some huge problems and huge gaps 
so that people are spending, well, it's, it's not incorrect to say years waiting for the oh. next stage in their training or they're oh. just put on, they've just put on hold. I think Nick and Nigel need to sign up again. Uh, and um, that the uh, group captain in charge of this aspect, um, you know, uh, has, well, this slightly different aspect at the moment, this on, on recruitment, uh, has uh, resigned. Anyway, um, apparently uh, the Air Chief Marshal in charge ha was told two and a half years ago that this had to be a priority to uh, fix the training system and get more pilots through to the front line because the front line were dramatically short. Um, and what is causing an additional problem is that um, you've got uh, so many demands, operational demands now on the operational squadrons, Typhoons and more importantly the F-35, and they are deployed now out uh, um, in the um, sort of Eastern Europe area um, around Ukraine, um, that uh, they can no longer man all the commitments they have so they've had to drag uh, flying instructors ocu instructors who would should be training new pilots under the f-35 away from their jobs because they're the only qualified pilots to help man the aircraft so um, as a result they can't train new pilots to ease the uh, workload and to provide more pilots to uh, fly these aircraft because the people who do that job are now doing an operational job on operational squadrons um and it's it's they say it's you know uh, the size of the air force has been so slashed so deeply in in years past uh, decades of uh, cost saving cuts which means that there just aren't the resources there aren't the number of pilots available now to fill these when when you literally are starting to count pilots on the you know the fingers of two hands uh, you don't have any spare capacity when all of a sudden there's an emergency you need to move additional pilots out to uh, fly operational aircraft and yet so so you can't continue the training system the training system uh, grinds to a halt it's really quite a serious problem for the royal air force and until these operational commitments um can slow down a bit and we can release those instructors back to their instructional job, it's only going to get worse because as pilots need relieving from their duties, uh, operational duties, as they do, they cycle them through every now and again, um, you need to have people to replace them. And at the moment, they don't seem to have that flexibility. It's it's really quite a serious problem. I seem to recall we also had a story, and I'm not sure how long ago it was. It was probably more than a year ago. But I remember a story about the quality of the recruits uh, coming in for training as pilots in the RAF. And they were having issues with kind of their attitudes about, you know, what they would be required to do and what they were required to know and I, learn. I don't know how much of that is... Um, uh, that, that's is, not, not is, a factor. ...was true. Okay. Um, the guys I met were all very well motivated, and mm -hmm. they they had been hanging around for ages and ages to okay. get on to the next stage of training. Well, that's and, good to know, uh, you know. 
That's yes, it was. Uh, I was quite surprised because okay. I'm amazed they stuck it for so long, quite mm-hmm. honestly, because, you know, if you really want to get in, get in and fly and you're watching the years disappear mm-hmm. uh, whilst you're not getting into the cockpit you want, you wonder, you know, what am I doing here? Right. I'm just completely wasting my time. In addition, there is a rumor out there that they have um, are now – trying to put quotas on who they recruited in the Air Force, and this is why that this uh, group captain in charge of um, recruitment has uh, resigned, apparently, because there uh, was a moratorium on uh, uh, white guys joining the Air Force, uh, and they're insisting on um, um, people Diversity. of color uh, or women uh, and they said they're putting a hold on recruiting the traditional uh, RAF pilot you know male white guys uh, and only recruiting um, women and people of color to try and equal the balance out it just seems a, a bad time to be doing that perhaps yeah putting uh, so much pe- emphasis on diversity when all these exactly. other areas are yeah being- I, I'm pretty clumsy at stating these things so i'm always worrying about who i'm going to offend. I know. So, so well you have to, sadly we have to be careful about it and yeah. i think you know people that know us know that we're you know we're <laughs> we are trying to um uh, we believe that the right person for the job is the right person for the job in other words the people yeah. that are the best, best. anyone who can cut the mustard yeah especially the air force when we're is talking short about of the, pilots yeah the yeah. air force i mean we're talking about the defense of the country and yeah. you want the best out there whether they're green or blue or with polka dots or not you know exactly so the air force have set themselves targets which they are desperate to achieve uh yet they can't encourage the right kind of people in so rather than accept the more traditional type of pilot, they are just saying, well, we're going to be short of them then. Mm. And I'm going, well, that, I don't understand the logic there. Uh, so there are a few problems in the RAF's training system right now. Uh, and um, I don't think we're hearing great um, music from the Royal Air Force uh, publicity people because they're all just basically seem to be putting their head in the sand. Mm. Of course, I no longer have any direct contact with all of these people, so I I can't speak for the horse's mouth. But um, I, I certainly am concerned about what's happening. Neil's got a question here for Nick. Uh, Neil Landworm uh, in our live audience, if you're spending a long time waiting to progress to your next cockpit, are there issues of currency? Do certain aspects of your training expire? Well, yes, exactly. Uh, that's correct, Neil, because that, that, that need to refresh people before they then commence the next time, next stage in training, because they're not consecutive, uh, just adds an additional workload. Because uh, if you've then got to put the guys through a small refresher course before you bring them up to, to get them up to speed to tackle the next flying course, that it, that is an additional number of hours that have to be flown. And some of these uh, refresher courses seem to be pitifully small, uh, which is a worry. Uh, in the, in the ideal days, you know, you would go two weeks between courses. So you stayed hot and uh, up to date and, you know, you were right, um, you, were, you were there. You didn't need any 
um, any refreshing because you had only just come off your previous course. So that that was ideal. You could soak it all up and just carry on going. But when you get these huge gaps, it's so easy to forget even the basics that you've been taught. Uh, and to try and relearn it all in time to commence the next course is, is a big problem. So when are Nick and Nigel going to start training people again? So um, Liz is asking um, whether or not uh, it might be a good idea to recruit uh, perhaps former instructor pilots uh, back <laughs> like uh, Nicholas Anderson and uh, Nigel Demery. Yeah, I think I think no matter how much they scrape the barrel, they won't find us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, if you need to find out uh, information about where this uh, Captain Nick is, yeah. give me a call. Yeah. Give me a call. Yeah. yeah. We know. Uh, all right. Uh, and then finally, in our new segment here, we have uh, this incident uh, involving uh, an Airbus A350-900 uh, Thai Airways uh, at Frankfurt on the first uh, January first, twenty twenty, about eight hundred feet AGL, about seven nautical miles from touchdown. Yeah, yeah, that's a long way out. Yeah, to be that low, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, Thai Airways Airbus uh, three fifty nine had a registration Hotel what? Sierra Tango I'm at the Hotel Fox Trot. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't look if you're sensitive. No. Um, yeah. Performing flight nine twenty six from Phuket, uh, Thailand to Frankfurt Main, uh, Germany, was on final approach to Frankfurt's runway seven right when the aircraft descended to about eight hundred feet above ground, about eleven hundred and fifty feet MSL, before they initiated a go around. Uh, the aircraft climbed to 5,000 feet MSL position for another approach and landing safely on runway seven, right? About 15 minutes later, Germany's BFU reported following the unstable approach and low level flying. The aircraft went around. The occurrence was rated a serious incident on, uh, the 27th of March, 2020, the BFU reported in their January bulletin that the first officer, 36 years old, uh, ATPL, at about 4,000 hours total, about 1,500 hours on type, was the pilot flying. The captain, 43 years old, uh, an ATPL, uh, about 8,000 hours total, about 400 hours on type, was the pilot monitoring. Two more first officers, all with airline transport pilot licenses, were present on board. About four hours prior to landing, a passenger had become ill. Uh, medical assistance have been requested to meet the aircraft upon arrival in Frankfurt. So I guess there might have been a little urgent sense of urgency to get the airplane on the ground um, sure. quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, an expeditious little approach, please. <laughs> yeah, time, sure did that. that time pressure, you know, that's uh, significant. Yep. Uh, descending through 7,600 feet towards Frankfurt approach, uh, the feeder instructed the crew to increase the descent, to descend to 3,000 feet, turning uh, to a heading 040 and clear the flight for an ILS approach to 7 right Zulu. The crew was instructed to maintain 170 knots indicated or more. The crew extended flaps to position 1 at about 6,000 feet MSL, 18 seconds to position 2. The gear was lowered at 5,100 feet. The sink rate was about 2,000 feet per minute at the time. The aircraft intercepted the localizer and was following the localizer with increasing sink rate. The automated call 2,500 occurred, and the autopilot was disengaged. The ground proximity warning system sounded nine seconds later, sync rate two times. Five seconds later, the automated call 1,000 
occurred, and the ground proximity warning system sounded glide slope. Uh, 34 seconds after the 2,500-foot call, the pilot flying call to go around. The pilot monitoring informed Frankfurt Tower, which was the first radio contact with Tower. At that point, the aircraft was at 668 feet above ground and um, 6.43 nautical miles before the runway threshold. The aircraft performed a second approach past the 6.43 nautical mile uh, point before the threshold at 2,238 feet MSL. Yeah, that's more like it. That was what it should have been. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So um, after a shortened final approach, the Airbus A350-941 was flying at night in good visual meteorological conditions, um, unstabilized on instrument approach to runway 7 right. The glide slope of the instrument landing system was flown through from above. Okay. So they were above. They descended rapidly and... I guess nobody noticed that the glide slope kind of came into view and then continued to go up towards the top of the indication, indicating they were below the glide slope. Uh, the cockpit crew aborted the instrument approach and initiated a go around about, okay, we talked about that, where they did that and how low they were. Uh, the investigation determined that errors in the programming of the waypoints in the flight management system, uh, errors in the handling of the auto flight system for the approach, reduced SA, situational awareness of the pilots in regard to their spatial position and communications and cooperation deficiencies within uh, the flight crew. Uh, the BFU rated the pilot in command, the co-pilot, and the two additional co-pilots as experienced due to their long aeronautical occupation and high total flying experience. Um, so a, an experienced crew here. The co-pilot conducted the descent and final approach up until the go-around procedure, the aircraft was flying behind another aircraft during the descent and approach. Therefore, the flight crew assumed for their own flight path planning that they would start their approach to runway 7 right after the preceding aircraft. The flight plan had been entered into the um, MCDU accordingly. The controller informed that due to the medical status, the approach would be shortened and they would no longer land after. So they were put, in, they put, they were put ahead of the aircraft that they thought yeah, they were this following. this was a mistake. Yep. Uh, the controller instructed them to fly north toward the localizer of 7 right. This reduced the remaining distance significantly. The cockpit voice recording showed that the flight crew's stress level increased. The pilot flying's orders were no longer clear and partially formulated as a question. Uh, the FCOM chapter initial approach described the flight plan had to be adjusted in the MCDU so that the vertical flight guidance could calculate the correct path and indicated on the pilot, uh, primary flight display. It was not possible to reconstruct the pilot's input into the MCDU because the flight data recorder is not designed to record these inputs. A discussion of the pilots regarding a possible route discontinuity in the MCDU would not be heard on the uh, could not be heard on the CVR recording. Uh, based on the chronological yeah. sequence of the aircraft configuration and the actual flight path, the BFU assumes that the flight plan had not been entered correctly into the MCDU. It's likely that the remaining distance above ground the flight crew had programmed in the MCDU was significantly longer than the actual one. It's very likely that the indication on the primary flight display of the calculated vertical flight path did not correspond with the mental image of the pilots. Uh, presumably, the flight crew had the impression to be much too high above the required flight path. Uh, in this phase, the flying experience of the flight crew should have taken effect. 
Altitude, speed, configuration have to be taken in consideration in order to estimate in which situation they are and then act accordingly. The BFU uh, assess the situational awareness in this situation as insufficient. In other words, they dorked it up. Based on the flight data, recorder data, it was possible to re- uh, it was possible to reconstruct that the pilot flying controlled the descent with open descent procedure. In order to increase the rate of descent at constant high speed, the landing gear was extended, and at times even the speed brakes and the flaps to increase drag. The flaps were used to reduce speed. These were extended to their permissible operating limit. At the flight control unit, initially an altitude of 6,000 feet and then 5,000 was selected. The pilot flying attempted to steer the aircraft in heading select mode onto the localizer. Initially, the localizer was overshot toward the north. With heading entries, the flight path was corrected towards the east. The approach mode had not been activated, however, and therefore the localizer capture mode was not active. Uh, About 2,060 feet um, above mean sea level, the localizer was captured and the flight management or the FMA indicated on the PFD localizer captured. After the aircraft had captured the localizer with the mode localizer engaged, the mean rate of descent was about minus 2,000 feet per minute, so a 2,000 foot per minute descent. Yeah, that's high uh, being that low uh, to the ground. Reached a maximum (laughs) of negative 4,009 feet per minute. Uh, Way too fast of a descent. Absolutely. Uh, The aircraft was flown with high speed at the permissible operating limit of flaps position two. Um, okay. So it talks about some of their, uh, stabilized, uh, approach criteria that, you know, stipulates below 1000 feet, a maximum rate of descent of minus 1000 feet per minute shall be flown. And I think that's pretty true with most operators that, you know, below yeah. 1000 feet, you don't want to exceed thousand feet per minute. And if you do for whatever the situation, like a special exception situation, it's something that you have to brief or you have to definitely let everybody know and communicate. Yeah, you've got to at least acknowledge it. Exactly. Um, So during the final approach phase, the aircraft was not configured for landing. Speed did not correspond with the landing configuration. The rate of descent was above the limit of 1,000 feet per minute. And the landing checklist had not been completed. Therefore, the the approach was not stabilized. Um, So they did the go-around. Um, the flight crew did not explain to the BFU why they had flown so far below the glide slope. It was not possible for the BFU to think they'd realized Jeff. I don't know. I guess they didn't, they didn't know. Cause, uh, they were expecting it to capture, but they'd only captured the localizer. And I don't think they engaged the approach mode, which would have completed the ILS capture and captured the glide path mm-hmm. as they reached it. And they went through it all they the didn't way notice. down to. 600 odd feet, and I did, they don't think they realized. No. And, until they tweaked, and then it was the only option then was to go around, apart from all the other things that hadn't completed. Well, let's add some gravy to this. Uh, the recorded cockpit communication was mostly held in the Thai language. There were no briefings in regard to the approach route and the instrument approach. These were stipulated in their FCOM. Um, these cockpit voice recorder analysis shows that during descent from cruise level, a relaxed atmosphere atmosphere prevailed in the cockpit. The first communications problem occurred on the radio frequency of the radar controller about four minutes prior to turning onto the extended runway centerline. Radar controller asked about the ill passenger. This communication occurred outside the regular phraseology. The pilot monitoring had problems understanding the content of the questions and asked the controller several times to repeat them. 
The cockpit voice recording showed that the flight crew's stress level increased continuously. This fact is proven by the instructions of the pilot flying, which were no longer clearly worded. The instructions for the pilot monitoring were partially formulated as questions. So, so we have a situation here where, you know, the, especially with people that, um, have, um, native languages that aren't, um, English, um, you're expecting a lot. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're relying upon the fact that people are, and that's why we talk about, especially uh, Captain Nick, a lot on the show that you have to use standard radio phraseology because, situations like this when english is not your native language you are expecting and and it's it's the same is true for us nick when we go fly to other countries and english is not their native native language we're expecting them to give us instructions in a certain way and sometimes that's really the only way that we know for sure exactly what they're trying to direct us to do because we we know we're used to this is the kind of phraseology that's normally used. So that's what they're obviously trying to tell us because we might have uh, uh, trouble understanding due to their very thick accents. I know that, yeah. you know, I don't have a lot of experience myself with this, but I do have a little bit. Yeah. And th- then, then it takes you time and distracts you from what you're trying to do and what was already a very crowded approach because now you've got to ask for a repeat and a repeat and mm-hmm. all that just takes distracts you from your primary duty of flying the airplane or in usually in the case pilot monitoring of monitoring the airplane and picking up and assisting the pilot flying from making uh, the decisions he needs to get the airplane onto the profile they were well above it um it, interesting isn't it because um i've put it been put in this position myself a few times and if you, you know, say we've got, we've got to, we could just have the same situation, got a medical emergency, and the airport um, want to cut down the track miles, you have to be very careful before you accept that. In other words, take a shortcut. Um, because <laughs> you're trying to get the airplane on the ground as sensibly early as you can, but that word sensibly is very important because if you have to do a go around you've just added 10 minutes yeah. to your flight time and much better to lose two minutes by extending your track and getting rid of that height than it is to lose 10 minutes in a go around so um, that's my first point um if you're not sure you can get down then don't accept a shortcut you know just keep on the old one and uh, they appear to be in the box modifying their track. And this is like the, the last few turns before you're established onto the ILS so that they can get their descent profile because the computer can't work out that you're on the profile unless you're actually going to fly the track you've put in the computer. Um, so where's your mental picture why why are you modifying a computer and relying on a computer to tell you what your flight profile is when if you're experienced enough you ought to be able to look at the map and go well, the airfield's there i'm here mm-hmm. that's 15 miles plus a bit for the dog leg it's going to take me to turn on the ls call that 20 miles i need to be at this height um and, and i'm way above that 
So, you know, that that's the mental mass we should all be flying, um, you know, plus a bit for the extra speed you're carrying because they're obviously desperate to get this height off, so they're maintaining high speed. It's all uh, becoming very hard. And then when you get this time-compressed approach because you've now got an awful lot to complete in a very short time, I don't know if they've completed the approach checklist or the, the rest of the stuff, um, you're going to start missing a few things, including... Uh, you're going to fly through the localizer because you're much faster mm -hmm. than you normally and you need a much bigger anticipation to turn onto the localizer. And then having uh, locked onto the localizer, you mustn't forget to engage the approach mode. Otherwise, the aircraft won't capture the glide slope and you'll end up doing what you're doing. One of the reasons um, we had a very specific um, intercept the glide path from above procedure which never involved going open descent uh, because it, it is a it is a dangerous thing to do. So we would set a rate of descent, and we had a maximum, I think, of fifteen hundred or two thousand. I can't mm -hmm. remember exactly mm -hmm. what it what it probably different for this uh, aircraft. So a vertical type speed anyway. mode. Um, yeah. Then. Okay. Yeah. So so uh, so that moderated, and if you couldn't mm -hmm. get it with that speed, then the decision is obvious. You go yep. around. You, now we tried. You've made it two times. Let's give it another try. Exactly, and then of course they're they're desperately trying to configure the airplane. Flaps one and even flaps two aren't going to do a lot. They put the gear down at five grand for heaven's sake. So mm -hmm. <laughs> perhaps you could have put that a bit earlier mm -hmm. uh, and use speed brakes and speed to get the airplane down, and then you know then start slowing once you got down. But trying to slow and um, descend all at the same time is is just a nightmare because you just can't configure the airplane quickly enough. And you just run out of time. And the irony of this situation is that had they realized that they were much, much further out than their brains recognized, they would have realized that we don't have to be descending yes. at 4,000 feet per minute at this super yes. high rate of speed. We can put the, yeah. the pitch of the nose of uh, the pitch of the airplane up, slow down, configure. Yep. And, and, and I, I talk about that or this kind of a situation a lot use your pilot brain you know automation is wonderful and it's great and it really is helpful but sometimes you have to kind of not sometimes always have to kind of look at what it's presenting and trying to tell you and the way you're understanding it and go does that make sense or no that doesn't make sense why you know so you, you I, would this be a situation nick that might be a good idea to say you know what screw the automation let's turn everything off and as long as you have your SA um, and, and just yeah, hand and fly the airplane. Yeah, I think that's the problem, That's Jeff, the problem that, here, uh, yeah. That they were using the automation because it's supposed to relieve you of duties. You you get a bit more of your brain back, but only mm -hmm. if you're using it appropriately yeah. and, and not just trying to make the airplane descend towards the ground and going way too low for uh, an appropriate position. So... Yeah, the, they. The, I think they they became and the whole crew because you know they got more than one bloke there, completely tar saturated, trying to uh, manage and control this descent, which is way outside their normal procedures. So they're not used to it, and they're not getting all the the nice steady cues and nice calm captain that they're used to. It's all turning into a bit of a panic. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something that could have had much more serious uh, oh, yeah. results rather than uh, a uh, go-around. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Neil says, my old mum would say, more haste, less 
speed rushing yeah. causes you to I make mistakes. I presume they had um, spare pilots in the back as well, didn't they? I don't know. Yeah, I think they mentioned the fact that, and I'm not really sure if they were actually up in the cockpit uh, where okay. you would expect them to be. Um, I don't know if that's a requirement, yeah. but I think at most airlines, if you have like a that they had two additional co-pilots. Okay, yeah, that you I would know where they were. That you would. I, right. I think I read somewhere where they kind of seem to have uh, implied that the extra crew members weren't up in the or if they were, they didn't say anything. Like, yeah, 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 because uh, the, they, they were probably in the best place to see that it was all turning into a right. bag of worms. So, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, I mean, to be fair, many of us have been in a similar situation, mm-hmm. and and it's only been a matter of pride that really kept us pressing on. And then we go, oh, this is this is really has gone wrong. Let's go around and try again. Uh, but they went a bit further than most of us would have gone. Right, uh, the the Sultan of Wings, cool name, uh, in our live audience. So why was situational awareness lost? The medical issue. I think indirectly the medical issue was part of the problem. And I think that the air traffic controllers uh, giving them priority on the approach and kind of shortening the approach from what they were expecting also um, helped to lose their essay. Uh, Yeah, yeah. put put them under a time pressure and they had now too much height and speed to be able to cope with that easily. And they let the airplane get ahead of them. I mean, we've always said stay ahead of the airplane. Mm-hmm. These guys were so far behind. They were, they were hanging back on. in Phuket. <laughs> yeah. Or, they were or just, fuck it they or were whatever on. that place is called. <laughs> they were on the tail, like just hanging on. Like, yeah, Ugh. they were. They were hanging on for dear life. Yeah. And, uh, yeah so that's not, not, not good. But, no. Um, you know, the, these are the sort of incidents that educate us. And it's great that mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than uh, a red face or two from this. Because um, you know these are the sort of things you think yourself. Okay, uh, how what what I would I have done in that situation, and how would I have coped? Because uh, it, they, I tell you, it's, it's a very easy trap to get into. And yeah, don't be fooled just because this was a foreign crew um, operating in in Germany. Uh, this trust me, this happens at all the airlines in the world. Uh, probably yes, exactly. A, a lot um, more mean, than no, you would expect. But, most of the airlines are pretty good at sweeping it under the carpet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't get away with it this time. Um, no, yeah. Didn't. Okay. Well, very good. Um, that was our news segment. And now, of course, it is time for you all to get to know us all. <laughs> um, getting to know us. And it's that all time of the show. Of uh, just, yeah, just a couple of us here. Where's that um, Nick Camacho? Pardon me? Where's oh, that Nick Camacho? Nick Camacho. Wait a minute. Look oh, like well done, Nick. Great timing, Nick. Uh, welcome, sir, to the, the show. Sorry, sorry for my tardiness. Oh, that's all right. I hope that your meeting went well. Yep. Good. Okay. Um, so we uh, just finished the news segment. Um, Nick, I don't know if you were able to listen to any of it at all, um, but... Um, if you wanted to add anything, uh, you're more than welcome to. Otherwise, we'll just uh, move on to our getting to know uh, segment. I, I just caught the back half of that. Um, Ty. Frankfurt um, Ty mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. Um, All tied up. Pretty crazy, yeah. Huh? Yep. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Well, um, since they're kind of tired of listening to uh, Captain Nick and myself, uh, why don't we uh, hear from you what you have been up to uh, since the last show? Nick Camacho. Uh, Yeah, I uh, haven't been doing a ton of flying. I got to go out a couple of mornings and uh, fly a little Luscombe, just do some local flying. Um, The temperature in my area of the world seems to have uh, maybe finally broken. Um, We had been in like the 97 to 105 degree range basically Mm. since the beginning of July. Mm. Yeah. up through Monday in the last three days, we've been down in like the mid to high eighties. So I'm kind of hoping that that is the end of the, uh, dog days of summer and mm-hmm. we start to get some cooler fall weather. Yeah. Uh, we all do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, a little bit of flying, uh, actually been pretty, uh, kind of in high gear with, uh, uh, my folks is a little company. My folks have a little fabrication company where they um, manufacture a couple of little aviation specific things. And one mm-hmm. of the well, their biggest the biggest thing that they deal with is a, a tow bar for vintage airplanes like Stearmans, Stearmans and T sixes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, the big Stearman Air Show or the big Stearman Flying in the United States is uh, one of their bigger events that they go to, and that's happening. Um, Starts on Labor Day, and I guess it goes for six days. It goes basically all week and into the next weekend. Wow. So uh, we've had a big push this last week getting uh, stuff built up and ready for that. And uh, just got a bunch of stuff finished and sent off to the powder coater. So we're in a pretty good place there and hoping to um, – I'm hoping to have enough of a break uh, between my work and other stuff going on to – uh, run up there for that. That is in uh, Galesburg, Illinois. Um, and it's a pretty pretty cool little show. They usually have, I think, like 90 to 100 Stearmans. Wow. So it's a pretty big show, yeah. Um, and then uh, a couple weeks after that, I started trying to put together some plans to maybe sneak out back out to the West Coast and uh, go to the air races mm-hmm. in Reno. So I don't have not got that stuff finalized yet, but I'm kind of hoping that'll work out. Well, getting back to your uh, folks, um, we know that they had some damage from that amazing, uh, what was that? EF4 tornado. I don't remember what, but it was a very, yeah, it was an amazing uh, tornado there. I know Mm -hmm. they had damage from that. How's, how's the um, repair thing going? So they, uh, you know, the big push was to get, their fence put back up of all the, of all the things that happened. It's, it's kind of ironic because you think of the fence as being like the most insignificant, but mm-hmm. uh, the fence was the first thing that got put back up. And that was really uh, fortunate. That was kind of like the most convenient thing because uh, they were having to, they had like a little makeshift side yard for their dog. They have a dog that lives in the backyard. most uh-huh. of the time, So that was a hassle for him. And then, um, just with all the stuff that all the equipment and stuff that lives in the backyard, they were a little uh, antsy about not having the fence. So getting the fence back up was a big deal. We got that up right before Oshkosh or the um, contractor got that up right before Oshkosh. And uh, they just this week have started the like big primary um, repairs and construction on the house. So we're hoping, um, we're hoping it's going to be like a month of, 
you know, pretty significant construction and then that'll be behind them. Yeah. All right. Well, good. So, um, not sure yet about, uh, whether or not you're going to be able to get away and head out to, uh, Reno for the air races. Yep. And if that works out, I think it'll, so we're talking about flying the C-47 up there. The C-47 mm-hmm. has been invited to be a part of the, uh, I think it's still called the Rolls-Royce Heritage Invitational, you know, but they basically do, they have the race, they have the race segment of that event. Uh, and then within the race segment, they also have a more traditional air show segment. Mm-hmm. Those are like the two active parts. And then on the static side of things, they actually have a this Rolls-Royce Heritage Invitational uh, where they invite, you know, a dozen or 15 or 20. I don't know how many. I think about a dozen um, restored airplanes, not just warbirds, just old airplanes. Um, and then they uh, judge them and then they award a, you know, basically a national champion uh, award for um, restoration and cool old airplaneness. Mm-hmm. So we're flying our airplane up there to be part of that. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of expectation for uh, any sort of awards. The only thing that is impressive about our airplane is the originality of it. Uh, you know, how much stuff is uh, getting it, nearly breaking and we're able to continue to maintain it and fly it. <laughs> Um, but well, yeah, I hope you get the cool there. old airplaneness award award. Yeah. I <laughs> love that. Yep. <laughs> it should be cool. Our, you know, our chief pilot who, uh, captain Nick interviewed while they were in England, uh, is actually going to be racing at Reno. He, mm-hmm. uh, he has a long history of racing at Reno. He's won the, in the T six class. And then for probably 15 years, he raced an unlimited, um, an unlimited racer called checkmate, which is a highly modified, uh, yak 11. And if you're at all familiar with a yak 11, it's, uh, it's basically like a Russian version of a T six. It's a two place trainer, low wing retractable gear. Um, and man, I should have put some pictures in here for this. Um, but they've taken this, what I think is about a 700 horsepower trainer. Um, and they put a R2800 on it, which is like a Bearcat or a Corsair engine, 2,000 horsepower. Oh, my engine. Lord. And they've, <laughs> uh, they've tightened. Involved. Yeah. Um, they've tightened things up. and <laughs> You'd <know>. need to, <laughs> particularly <laughs> after an extra flight. couple of bolts <laughs> to keep the wings on. Yeah. Um, and so he's been racing this. Uh, he's been racing this Yak for about 15 years, and then they – uh, semi-retired it four or five years ago. Um, you know, it ran well, but it could not keep up with the super Mustangs that were racing in the mid 2010s. Um, but now all of those, uh, super Mustangs have, uh, kind of gone into retirement or, um, are not around. And so they think they have a real chance to win. And so they've kind of taken the airplane out of, uh, out of retirement and um, are getting it dialed in for Sherman to go out and make another run at it. Excellent. That should be pretty exciting. Yeah. All right. Captain Nick. Um, Anything else? Nick Camacho. Um, 
I don't think so. Well, if you I think, think of anything uh, else, uh, you can jump I think that's about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Captain Nick, um, how have you been, sir? I guess the, uh, all the bowling championship, uh, stuff is all has ended or are you still involved? Not in some quite, not oh, quite. Okay. Um, I've got, uh, the Harry Mills triples, uh, competition Ooh. tomorrow. Uh, the new club I'm at bowls, uh, at Alton, uh, they've got their finals day and I'm through to one of the uh, singles men's singles finals in that. And that's on Saturday. And on Sunday, I'll be playing in the Handsome Burks Cup final with them, which is a big competition. That'll be great. So um, I've got some good competitions coming up. Um, next week, an interview for PTUK. I'm speaking to a Harrier pilot who's written a book called Nine Lives. And then uh, um, with a little, well, a lot actually of sadness, we'll be heading off Neville Bounds and I will be heading off to uh, Ivor's funeral on Friday the 26th uh, up on the Welsh border. So uh, that'll be, um, that's that's kind of next week for me. And um, this week was really dominated by uh, a visit by a great old friend of mine uh, from the Royal Australian Air Force and now from Qantas. So I've Got a picture of his aeroplane up there behind me today, a Qantas A380, which uh, he uh, flew over from uh, Australia to Singapore, I think, and then came across to here. And, uh, yep, there's uh, there's Rowie uh, and uh, my lovely wife in the backyard. This is how I remember him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> His his wine handling wasn't quite as good when he was in the Australian Air Force, uh-huh. but um, we we uh, we certainly uh, fed him if nothing else. Uh, we yeah we we uh, cooked a couple of uh, tomahawk steaks. Uh, mm. Those vast. are huge. <laughs> they are absolutely enormous. They're, they're they're like pieces of dinosaur meat. <laughs> you know, Fred Flintstone would have coped yeah. with that. Right. And uh, there there's Julia's tiny little bit of fillet. Uh, steak there uh, for her but um, we uh, did that and of course Ray had a had a great time it was lovely wow um, so uh, it was super to see him and uh, catch up with old times and uh, hear about what it's like to get back with uh, Qantas because he's one of those pilots who uh, hasn't been in full employment uh, for quite a while he um, ended up working again for the Australian Air Force for a while uh, while he was having a bit of a sabbatical from Qantas because they were laying off a lot of pilots. But now their 380s are um, coming, getting back into the air. It's great to see them. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, uh, you know, I was watching them make uh, approaches into, uh, you know, on flight radar into Heathrow the other day. And there were, you know, an enormous number of them coming in. Uh, very impressive. So, I think uh, we'll be seeing 380 around for still uh, a long time. But it was lovely to see Rowan and then packed him off back to London. He had a three-day layover, so it was great. And mm. uh, packed him off back to London before the <laughs> the railway men went back on strike. So that was good. Mm. And uh, he flew out a couple of days ago, got a message from me saying he got successfully into 
Singapore, so uh, that's all fine and beautiful for him, and he'll be heading back to Australia before too long. Excellent. And that's really been um, my my week. Uh, we drank an awful lot of wine, um, including uh, really? some uh, of uh, every Australian with any uh, taste will recognise this, mm. a bottle of Galway Pipe, which uh, Rowy knows is my favourite port, uh, an Australian port, despite the name. Um, so he bought a bottle of that, and that's almost empty. There's just the dregs left in the bottle. And you just opened uh, it, like, uh, when we started today's show. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we opened it the, the, uh, uh, in our first meal with those oh, steaks. Okay. And, uh, and and he also gave me a, a bottle of uh, Penfold's Gra- well, Father. It's a uh, very nice uh, port. Australians make some great wines and, mm-hmm. of course, going along with winemaking there's port making and they do some lovely ports and the the Australian Air Force very good at drinking them I I, I've never seen a a nation more devoted to drinking port Hmm. (laughs) so anyway we uh, we put away a fair bit of uh, a few G&T's and uh, had a good time so that was great Eliz um there are too many comedians in the world already, so uh, uh, <laughs> stop trying so hard. She said, "Not even Port Jiggle." Uh, uh, no, possibly yeah. not. No, 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 I'm afraid. Yeah, I don't think much of Portuguese port. No, the Aussies make much better port. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let's uh, just quickly talk about. Let's talk about me. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, I had dinner with Miss Tanya uh, in the New York City area. She uh, oh, brilliant. took the PATH train over from Manhattan over to Jersey City on the other side of the Hudson. I had, uh, I had a trip uh, with uh, a double Newark um, layover, um, but no, I didn't get to stay there continuously for two nights. So I had to actually go fly in between. And I was with my favorite co-pilot, uh, First Officer Brent. And uh, so the three of us went to a nice little uh, Chinese place in uh, Jersey City and had a nice visit with uh, Tanya. And um, when I was in the pilot lounge on one of those days in in Atlanta, um, somebody walked up to me, a guy named Dan White, and uh, he said, Captain Jeff, love what you do. I love all the hard work um, that uh, Liz does. No, he, he didn't say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, he said no. he, he appreciated uh, all the work that all of us do uh, on the show. And uh, that um, now you'll remember uh, you might remember uh, him as the uh, gentleman who sent me some uh, stickers. Uh, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to uh, share something here. Uh, oh, why do I have to open up my computer's? security and privacy thing. Oh, I guess this is a somewhat new computer, and I guess I've never attempted to uh, share my screen. <laughs> Hang on. This will just take a moment. Um, no, I can't do that. It wants me to quit Google Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to be a good idea. Uh, all right. So um, what I'll do is in the show notes, I'll um, it's called Cockpit uh, Creations his company where he makes the stickers and other items such as uh, coffee mugs and 
certain things like that. He said his new venture is something he calls uh, Aviation Her- Heritage Spirits. That's AV-ALC, uh, AVALC, uh, Aviator Fuel. And on the website here, he says, you know, from the early days of powered flight, there has been AVGAS, the, the fuel for piston engine aircraft, and then came AVTUR, T-U-R, the fuel for turbine engine or turbine, excuse me, or engine air aircraft. While contemplating this, it soon became apparent to us that this was an unfair situation and that we as aviators and aviation enthusiasts should all also have a fuel of our own. So we set out to correct this injustice, and we are pleased to say that there now exists a third type of aviation fuel, AV-ALC, Aviator Fuel for the People of Aviation. Yay! And uh, the website has a couple of different places you can go. You can go to the USA uh, version of the website, the UK version. And basically, um, how do I describe uh, this? You'll have to look at the website, but they are um, kind of teaming up with people and these special um uh, so they offer a wide range of high-quality liquors from various independent distilleries, bottled and brought to market in especially in specially designed and molded bottles, fitted with our unique patented labels. Wish I could show you the picture here, but again, just check it out in the show notes and uh, the website, and you can see some of these beautiful creations. Uh, our Mark II glass bottles were specially designed and are custom molded to be fitted with our AvAlk labels, aircraft skin type, metal, wood, and or composite labels, complete with rivets, hinges, and some other bits of hardware. Yes, this is the bottle of alcohol we're talking about. Each bottle is individually hand-labeled with the label effectively being built onto the bottle. These custom design labels allow us to create bespoke bottle labels that feature specific information, details, and or artwork. In this way, we can then create labels to celebrate, commemorate, and pay tribute to significant historical events, famous aviators, and iconic aircraft. And just uh, on the U.S. version, uh, they have the Red Tail P-51D Little Coquette Straight Bourbon Whiskey, and uh, it's quite a presentation of the bottle and the uh, the case uh, in which it comes. Uh, also a Curtis P-40 Shark Mouth Texas Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Yeah, the Sultan of Wings is saying. And the APG discount code is... I don't know. Maybe um, maybe we can uh, work some kind of a, a discount from Dan. Um, you know, he's he's interested in uh, he uh, pops possibly working with us in some way. Uh, so I'm I'm sure we might we can be, be able his to, tasters. Yeah, we can be his official tasters. Oh, that's a good idea, Liz. I like that. I like the way you think. Anyway. Um, it's a it's an interesting concept, and these are not the this is not your everyday you know sipping bourbon sipping whiskey. Uh, these are these are for special occasions because the they're good stuff. unless you're extremely rich, and then maybe this is your daily thing. You know because they, these things are <laughs> uh, there's more than just the really really nice alcohol contained within these bottles, but it's that and the beautiful bottles themselves with the beautiful yeah, labels and the, yeah it's a very uh, the presentation is just amazing um so uh oh and the other thing he mentioned and i'm not sure uh, uh, sorry dan i we were in the pilot lounge and i only remember m- most of what we discussed but uh there was uh some talk of this company i think it, he has some kind of connection with it and it's an english company uh, called Aerocraft Panels, A-E-R-O Craft Panels dot com. And um, 
Let's see. Born from a lifetime of enthusiasm and passion for aviation, our unique wall art aerocraft panels bring the essence of aviation home. And basically, these are panels uh, made to look like, um, you know, like pieces of airplanes, like a Spitfire or a, you know, whatever. Uh, but they're but they're bars. You can mount these things on your Ooh. wall and then kind of crank the the side of the uh, of the panel outward. And Do it's they just make an really, RV? Really uh, one that would fit in an RV? Would the, do they make one that would fit in an RV? I guess if I uh, ended up getting a very large Class A diesel pusher, I could probably fit one in, in there, Liz. But, oh, uh, I see. It's like a piece of fuselage, uh, and you lift up the side of the fuselage, yeah. and there are a load of optics behind. Yes. Very nice. I see. You went to the site there. so Yeah, I'm yeah. there looking at them. Isn't that something? Yeah, pretty, it's pretty good. Nice. looks great. Um, oh, LED, clever LED lighting, yeah, nice got, RF Randall on there. The there, Dan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their workshops is, is situated in the North Pennines? Pennines? Pennines. Pennines. Okay. Yes. Which is an area of hills. Area of outstanding natural beauty in the north of England. And uh, anyway, so again, I'll have That's that. That's where the orcs live. Oh. Okay. All the orcs live up there. Yeah. Gotcha. And the goblins. Got ah, goblins okay. Is it safe? No. No. Okay. Well, then probably best to just uh, go to the website, order it, and yeah. have it delivered. You don't want yeah, to go up I, there. Yeah, I would have it have it delivered <laughs> and make sure the driver stays in his van. <laughs> all right. So uh, anyway, uh, we'll have that link in the show notes for you all to check out. So cover art. All right, cover art time. Um, it looks like. Uh, Episode 532 uh, was another hit, uh, a hit on the head. Um, a Boeing on the Head is the name of the, the title of the show. And uh, there are, um, I don't know where you found all these crazy hats that I don't think any of us have actually worn. <laughs> uh, but in the picture, it appears that we are. And, uh, of course, they're all Boeings, of course, except, um, well... Nick's hat is not a Boeing a Boeing airplane, um, but it does say Boeing on it, I believe. Um, and then uh, Steph's particular hat's like a beanie hat, I guess you'd call that, right? Propeller beanie. A propeller hat, propeller beanie. Um, but uh, anyway, very clever. Uh, Liz does not look to be happy uh, in the least uh, about <laughs> being with us with all our stupid hats. Yeah, my <laughs> usual look when I'm around you guys. That, that's her happy face. I oh, think. is it? Oh, I've that's seen, her happy face. I've yeah. seen her happy face, and I don't recognize that as such. <laughs> oh. I've seen oh. I've seen her face uh, when she's irritated. My I see that a lot. My cast is going out because your plane is coming towards <laughs> yeah. me. There is that right? Yeah, she looks like she is gritting her teeth a little bit, but yeah, <laughs> I think she was enjoying herself. But that was at, at Nick's time. retirement lunch. That's why. I'm oh, that was at Nick's retirement luncheon. She said. Uh, that's why she um, is looks like she's in oh, pain. Oh, you reckon? I don't think I no. I don't think it was my <laughs> retirement luncheon. I don't know. You guys can can argue about it. I guess after the show. <laughs> anyway, so that was our uh, artwork for the. Thank you, Captain Nick, for doing oh, that. Oh, you're as welcome. Always. The actually the other suggestion would probably mm-hmm. have been easier, but there mm-hmm. you go. I had my heart set on that one. And we're not even going to talk about what the other suggestion is because I don't want to embarrass you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, and now, of course, it's time for the Coffee Fund. Uh, Your way to support the show financially. And uh, 
couple different ways to do that. One is the uh, the OG method, the uh, Coffee Fund Classic method. And since the last show, we have uh, a one-time donation from, although he has donated several times, but it's not a recurring donation. Mazus Karim, uh, who, whom we saw in um, England. Um, the Brooklyn's. Yeah, in the Brooklyn's uh, for the PTUK 400 episode uh, celebration. Um, thank you, Mazus, for uh, again contributing to the show. And we have several other recurring uh, contributors uh, using that particular method. And then the other way uh, to contribute is via the uh, via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And uh, we have a new producer, uh, Miklos, um, sends in or signs up to be a patron of the show. And we have two people who were producer level and decided to bump it up a couple of steps to assistant senior executive producers, Sierra Mike Kilo and Robert Mac Coble II. So thank you very much uh, for, uh, for upping your standards, and uh, we think that all of you should up yours. Um, and uh, I always, any time, any opportunity I have to do that little <laughs> stupid joke, I, I take advantage of. Anyway, so thank you very much for becoming patrons and, and increasing your uh, patronage. And if you're interested, and we have several people who are patrons and uh, send in their recurring donations every episode, every month. Thank you so much. We do appreciate it. If you want to learn more how you can become part of this great group of folks who su- support the show, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and we will too, for sure. Captain, incoming message. All right, we're going to go to uh, feedback six while we have Captain Nick here with us. And this was sent in. By the way, a lot of we're trying to catch up with feedback uh, although I thought we were, Liz, we were just going to do a couple of news items. <laughs> I know, but there was so much good. I know there was a lot of good news going on. So sorry about that. We were going to do a kind of almost like a feedback extra. Maybe we need to do that at some point. Next but anyway, uh, we have a lot of feedback that was sent in um, that is a while back. Um, and we're we're getting to blame it, it on Oshkosh. We'll blame it on Oshkosh and my lack of. <laughs> resourcefulness or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Peter uh, sent this in. He said, hi, Captain Jeff. Thought Captain Nick might enjoy this mock loop video. Uh, There are a couple passes by RAF tornadoes. Not sure if he ever flew that aircraft. Yes, he did. (laughs) He's talked about it a few times, Um, but thought he'd enjoy it just the same. And so now I'm going to have to scramble to uh, load up that video so that we can all watch it together and uh, shouldn't take me too long here. Uh, Yeah. Open. And let's see. I'm going to add that to the stream. Is it this one? Yeah. Okay. The last tornado through the mock loop, Royal Saudi Air Force tornado GR4. Ooh, listen. That looks, uh, looks pretty uh, fast, Captain Nick. It does go quite fast. Uh, yeah. But uh, that's about all it does do. 
<laughs> and actually, the uh, the GR4, uh, I, I didn't fly that variant. I flew mm-hmm. the F3. Okay. That was an Eagle, a Strike Eagle by the looks of it, was it? Yep, it was. Here's a pair of somethings. Oh, more Eagles. Yeah, I think more Eagles here. Um, uh, Looking have- a bit sedate, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. Um... Look at the, at least they're down down nice and low. They are nice and low, and doing some nice hard maneuvering as well. Mm-hmm. It's a great video, by the way, um, for those of you um, not watching the video of the show. Please make sure that you check out the show notes, and you'll be able to see that one. Looks like it's just standing still. That one too. Yes. Because <laughs> um, uh, there were still pictures. Uh, here's the F-16 Falcon. Um, oh, I thought it was, I thought it was the F-16s that looked like they were a lot higher than everybody else making these passes. Oh, but there's some more. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh he's oh. there's he's climbing up. Now you have to look up. Yeah. Oh no. That's Come on. <laughs> Get down in there. The, the Sam sights just spotted you. His wingman's doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there used to be a rule: never go below your leader, but uh, apparently not. Hmm. Those don't. Those rules do not apply anymore. Apparently, I guess. Uh, let's see. I've, yeah, this bloke's a bit tame, isn't he? Yeah. Some more. Uh, some more vipers. So I'm going to. Oh, look at this. This I thought was pretty impressive. Um, oh, the Herc. Yeah, yeah, he's he's doing a good job down there. He's making the F-16 guys look kind of bad. <laughs> I think. I mean, he's not going as fast, of course. But uh, he's way down in the valley. Yeah, way down there. In fact, uh, oh, I think yes. at some point Look in this video, at, yeah, he's cracking on a good set, 60, 70 degrees of bank. Mm-hmm. See the uh, the position of yeah. the photographers; they're pointing down um, to see the top of this 130. He's very low. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, this is this is a wingman. Yeah, I love it. You can see what a great spot it is because you can get onto the rocks on the uh, the top of the ridge and look down into the middle of the valley and uh, oh, they're RAF boys. Well done, chaps. Yeah, nice job. I'm trying to remember exactly uh, the sequence of things here. I think um, one of them I wanted to point out was an airplane that you flew uh, in in addition to the tornado. It was, uh, oh, we've got a Hornet, have we? Uh, no, I, well, they, I don't know if they had any hornets in here, but this one right oh, here. Oh, a hawk. Yeah. yeah. There's a little fella. Look at the little hawk. That's uh, <laughs> the, the new hawk. That's not the uh, the old T1 oh, that I flew. Oh, okay. That's the new variant of okay. trainer, so they're brand new ones. I see. Okay. Ours didn't have uh, weapons on, whereas that one's capable of carrying weapons. I see. Okay. But it's a lovely little maneuvering. Uh, yeah, it maneuvers beautifully. It's perfect for uh, this kind of flying. All right. Well, we're not going to play the entire uh, video. You'll have to uh, go and uh, seek it out yourself again in the show notes. Um, but um, that was... That was great. Anyway, thanks, Peter. Yeah, that was nice of Peter to uh, send that in. Here, I need to remove that from the screen and um do appreciate that yeah. and that as i was saying that tornado was a mud mover not not a air defense variant mm. but it, it looked okay didn't it yeah wing 45 hanging loads of tanks hanging off it mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you have such a fondness for 
for that airplane. That tornado, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. It was a fine airplane to finish my career on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and that's what it did. It finished his career. Um, yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's uh, continue with um, – Liz just mentioned that we have a little under 10 minutes remaining, so we'll try to pop out a couple more here. Uh, we got some feedback from Tom T. Um, and uh, regarding, I guess we were talking about Spirit Flight 3044, where they had a uh, an evacuation on the ground. And, of course, you know, the typical everybody grabbing their personal effects and, uh, you know, leaving the airplane with them instead of leaving them in the airplane. He said, cutting to the chase, cabin video of passengers emptying overhead bins. What will it take to have those bins locked? After the cabin is secured, 100 people burned to death. What's the safety issue with locked overheads? So darn infuriating. What say you, captains? And uh, the um, article that he uh, sent a link to uh, talked about the uh, experts from the Royal Aeronautical Society in England have published a study. This is back in 2018, which recommended that regulators study whether locking overhead bids might discourage passengers from delaying evacuations by stopping to get their bags, endangering other passengers in the process. It's a serious concern. There have been a number of recorded accidents during which passengers have ignored crew instructions, like every one, I think, and obvious danger from intense fire and prioritized their possessions over their lives. Um, so it goes through and um, let's see, I highlighted a couple of uh, things in this article. The risk uh, in this scenario is that something that might be critical to uh, passengers, a passenger's survivability gets locked away. Okay, so that's one of the negatives about locking bins. Uh, During aircraft evacuations, every second that passes can result in a greater risk of injury or death. During evacuations, the cabin crew are first focused on getting passengers out quickly. A delay among the crew in opening a secondary manual lock to pull a life raft, an oxygen mask, or a smoke hood out could prove as dangerous as passenger baggage delays. There is also concern that passengers may delay evacuations by trying to force the locked overhead bins open instead of getting out of the aircraft quickly. The authors of the study acknowledge that locking overhead bins may not be a perfect solution for this irrational passenger behavior. Still, the aviation industry will need to find a solution before passenger actions lead to loss of life. So I'd see good points or good arguments for and against this whole thing. What do you think, uh, Captain Nick? I read the report uh, with interest, um, and uh, they don't try and come up with the answer they're just offering solutions and they say it's really tight it's up to the agencies the you know safety agencies to come up with it i I don't agree that um an excuse to lock it would uh or not to lock it would be that safety equipment's in there you just need to allocate uh some lockers purely for safety equipment and leave them unlocked Uh, so passengers can't put uh, their own um, luggage in there and uh, they always remain unlocked for the cabin crew um, whereas you know perhaps automatic locking on the passenger ones would uh, I think you've got to do more than lock it you've got to have electronic signs say on the front of the bins saying bin locked evacuate immediately um, you know something that's going to encourage people to leave the damn thing alone and get out. Um, 
the ultimate, of course, would be to have no hand luggage in their cabin. Yeah, right. Now, that's the safest way. But, of course, people want to put expensive things into their hand luggage and they want to keep it with them, which is one of the prime reasons why they want to grab it when they get off the aircraft. Um, so, you know, that's a bit of a self-defeating thing uh, unless you make the hold um, incredibly safe. They've, in the past, the reason people put their expensive things in their hand luggage is that there are so many thefts from hold luggage. So you'd have to cure that entire problem and uh, convince all the passengers that uh, that's not. Um, one way might be, I mean, we used to have smoking on airplanes and we've got rid of that. Mm -hmm. Almost by the only the only way we'd manage to do that is by making it against the law. So uh, if in the same way you say in an emergency, if we evacuate and you try and bring your luggage, you will be prosecuted to the full extent of the mm -hmm. law and you will become a criminal, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that might in time uh, induce people to leave their luggage um, on board uh, but the people just have to understand that seconds count and uh, the regulators work so hard to make sure that you can get out of an aircraft within the the very small time window before the place turns into an inferno um, and if it only needs a few passengers with a damn great you know carry on to block the aisles or block or damage the slides because they're they're not then they're not um, invincible. They're they're quite easily damaged. They they they're nice and firm when they're full of air. But you puncture a hole in them, they're going to wither, and you're going to end up falling fifty feet from the mm. cabin door instead of sliding down a nice slide. People need to be well educated, and they need to think more about others rather than just themselves and their laptops. You know. Yep. I agree. Camacho. What do you think? I, yeah. Most all of the same comments. I, I don't think, I think that uh, trying to legislate it uh, would be challenging because people would always say it's a state of mind thing. You know, it's one thing if you're sitting in a completely calm airplane and you try to strike up your cigarette and they're like, oh, you can't do that. Um, I think it'd be much more challenging to try to in this like super crazy environment where everybody's already losing their minds and um, not obviously not thinking rationally because they're trying to take their luggage with them. Man, uh, at least where we live in the United States, I, I would be a little concerned that the, the court system would not be able to adequately adjudicate that. Mm -hmm. Um uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, as a as a uh, well-known uh, CRJ disrespecter, I hate <laughs> luggage that is carried on and put in the overhead bins. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, you know, like we've, t I think I've mentioned it probably a, multiple times on the show, but you know, I, it just seems like it would solve so many issues if people, if, if we basically reversed how we did things, right? You had to pay to use that space in the overhead bin and they let you put stuff in the cargo hold for free. Mm -hmm. um, that wouldn't completely solve this issue, but I wonder how it would impact it. You right. know, if people, obviously you're never going to get rid of luggage in the, in the cabin of the airplane. And there's, you know, there's always going to be 
Uh, women have to have their purses. Men and women are going to have to have personal items, whether it's medication or glasses or, or whatever. But laptop um, computers and you know stuff that you want to have yeah, with you to do work uh, on a yeah, emotional flight. support peacock it, exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's just uh, getting man. I don't know. Getting over that mindset of I, I don't and I don't know what it would take. Like you know, half the problem is ninety percent of the evacuation. Well, Every evacuation that you ever see on social media now, the airplane is burning to a crisp and there's smoke billowing out everywhere. And you see all these people nonchalantly wandering off the airplane with their luggage. You know, and it's almost every time I see that, I'm almost like, oh, man, there's another negative reinforcement to somebody else who's like, oh, hey, mm-hmm. look, that person survived this horrible situation. And they had their luggage. Keep, yeah. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind next time, uh, next time I have it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, it worries me as a person who flies. Uh, I'm, I'm generally, a, 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 I don't know. I consider myself a risk averse person being a GA pilot. That's probably an oxymoron, but, uh, I do try to think through things, uh, you know, scenarios. And so I, I, I try to do basic things, uh, that would assist me in, uh, abnormal situations in the airplane. I always wear shoes. I don't wear flip-flops. Um, I, you know, I generally just in life try to wear clothes that won't like melt to my body. And I do all these little things. And then uh, I think about the fact that like, I, I try to be prepared for these scenarios and it just takes one person who is like trying to get their roller bar, roller bag that's wedged into the overhead that's between me and the exit mm-hmm. emergency exit. It only takes one of those people for all of that to be irrelevant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. At least one of the good things about the, uh, the 200 series of the, uh, CRJ is that those darn bins are so teeny tiny. They're, they are, they're, they're so small. It's really, there's no way that people can put their big roller boards up there because they will not fit. Um, you know, that at least it's just hand luggage, literally, you know, light, mm-hmm. lightweight stuff. I mean, it doesn't, uh, solve the situation completely, but, uh, I, you know, I'm wondering also if, if there were, to, if there, well, so what's the, what's the fear that people have in checking their luggage? Well, I guess it's not going to make, you know, Theft. especially if they have a connecting flight, is it going to make the transfer? Is it going to actually show up at the baggage claim at my destination uh, or theft? As uh, Liz just mentioned, uh, the people are afraid that if you have something valuable in your bag, that uh, the thieves are going to somehow find it. And, and then you're going to, your bag is going to show up and your, you know, expensive item is not there. What about uh, a situation where you could go, just prior to boarding an aircraft and putting it almost like a, like a lockable locker system where, mm. you know, you only have the key to it. And then this somehow this thing goes into a part of the airplane that you have no access to during the flight. Um, I don't know if, if they've thought about well, that or a, not. That's a good idea. You could, you know, file everyone pass a, uh, you know, a cargo a container mm-hmm. that had lockable compartments and mm-hmm. uh, you've got one allocated to your seat you put it in there lock the front of the container mm-hmm. uh, no one gets it because it goes straight on the airplane and as soon as you land it's the first thing off right and as you come off the airplane you go to your locker and there's your kid right and then yeah. if you're in an emergency evacuation obviously that thing is not going to be available to you to put your key in or whatever 
but it's you know, fireproof and, exactly and fireproof right. as Liz that's is saying, yeah, make it fireproof and, you know, um, so I'll that, have it injectable hardened. with a parachute so that it comes. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to get really crazy. Oh boy. We're really. Yeah. I, it's too bad. Uh, Steph is not here. Right. Cause she's uh -huh. like the carry on queen. Mm -hmm. when it comes oh, certainly traveling. she is. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, my attitude is uh, I'm kind of with you, Jeff. I, I carry my laptop with me and it's, it's not even as much that I am worried about losing it for the financial value. It's just the giant hassle to my life, right? right. If I lost it and everything on it. Exactly. Um, but outside of that, I, I try to check everything. And like, you know, right now I have the lowest level of United frequent flyer. And the only thing, the only reason that that uh, means anything to me is because I can check a bag for free. So yeah. I don't even have to think about it. But even when I couldn't, I would still pay 30 bucks to not have to haul all my stuff through the airport. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, so, yeah, I, I would be curious if it's just the uh, fear of theft or losing it. You know, Neville uh, recently had an incident where he lost uh, maybe all of his luggage. Was it him and his wife traveling and he lost all of his yes. luggage? Yes. Um, which sucks. But then when you look at, I, I don't know, and I think he said that's the first time that ever happened. And if you look at how often he travels, mm -hmm. it's actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about multiple flights, I think per week maybe, mm -hmm. for most of his life. <laughs> that's really a pretty good uh, uh, ratio of success. It is. It could always be better. but um, Wrap it up. Yeah. Liz uh, is, is uh, kind of warning um, Nev uh, when he travels with Nick next week. Uh, just keep it, keep a you know, good eye on your personal belongings because you know, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> this is a bloke who drives a Ford. He's got nothing I want. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> on that note, on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. The control room is telling you, us babe. we <laughs> have to uh, wrap up the show, at least part one of our show, and then magically, uh, in just a um, uh, mere seconds, you're going to hear. Uh, the voice of Dr. Steph and uh, whoever else uh, managed to uh, show up for part two. And uh, we look forward to that. Ooh, wow. That's good. That's heavenly. You're, re you're really good at sound effects, amongst other things. Um, Dr. Steph is here. Yay. Woo. I Hello. made it. Yeah. Hi. Hi, what's been up? What's what's been up with you? Ooh, I wish it was exciting things, but it's been a lot of work. I'm sorry I missed y'all for part one. Um, I did listen in a little bit; sounded like a good show. So mm -hmm. happy to um, kind of pick up the slack here and move on with some more feedback. Excellent. All right. Well, then we'll just do that. Um, was that you, Liz, or was that uh, Poppy? That was Poppy. <laughs> Shaking. Poppy's shaking. Did she? Was she go swimming or something? Uh, what's no, going on? No, she just woke up from a nice. Ah, day. okay. I just heard a dog shaking sound. Okay, let's continue with some feedback, shall we? Number four. Number four, and this is from Robert. Robert Tucker. Uh, no, Robert in Tucker. He used to be near the big chicken somewhere. 
but uh, other part of town now. Anyway, he says, just making sure you all saw this update. And then he gave us a link to LufthansaGroup.com. And Lufthansa reactivates the Airbus A380. First flights expected from summer of 2023. And sadly, too late for our friend Stefan. Yes, you're right, Liz. Um, mm. But uh, I think we might have... There we go. Look at that. Look at that beautiful airplane. It's a large it's airplane. Well, at least it's a large airplane. Um, it's lovely. It is. You know, it's it's beautiful in its own... It's majestic. Way. It's majestic, yes. It's huge. I'm so used to hearing that. That's what she said. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, Lufthansa is reactivating the Airbus A380 in response to the steep rise in customer demand and the delayed delivery of ordered aircraft. The airline expects to use the long-haul aircraft, which is popular with customers and crews, again from summer 2023. The company is – by the way, I didn't see Stefan um, in, um, in Oshkosh. Um, because I le- I think he got yeah. there like on Friday, uh, yeah. and I left on Friday, so we just missed like two ships passing in the night. Mm. Um, anyway, those uh, I can tell you have notes, Liz. Oh, sorry, <laughs> it's okay. Is she shuffling yeah, her notes? We're doing a little bit different. She's using a different microphone than she normally does. I see. So you're getting you're getting all the the ambiance. I am. Had. I'm getting a so lot. far. We've we've been you know going for like three minutes on this part two of episode five thirty three, and you've heard um, Poppy the dog in the background shaking. You know, I'm a little dog, like, uh, easily distracted. And then uh, you know some shuffling of papers. Mm-hmm. So you mean like where's this, the uh, yeah? squirrel? Yeah, uh, hold on. There it is. Thanks, Liz. Yes. Okay. I was waiting for a sound, Liz, not the not the no, uh, no, I, picture. I'm a visual person. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> right. So I think we were talking about the Lufthansa we were. 380s. Okay. Why don't you uh, yes. continue with our little talk about the uh, Lufthansa 380? So, so this kind of surprised me a little bit. They're going to use it from summer of 2023, which is yeah, actually like, quite a way from ways from now. It is. We're still in summer of 2022, so we're talking like maybe nine, ten months from now. Yeah. It's a long time, but I mean, I suppose that, you know, there will be some crews to train and you have to, uh, maybe some maintenance items to look over and preparation, mm-hmm. building schedules. Right. I don't know. Maybe that all takes that much time. But Well, they have 14 of them um, currently parked in Spain and France uh, in deep storage. Six hmm. of these have already been sold. Oh, so... So they only have yeah, eight. only eight remain now. Hmm. Okay, you know though, uh, a lot of us thought that once all of this deep storage happened, that you know we weren't probably going to ever see them flying again. But mm-hmm. we were wrong. Yeah, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, I think we've you know, uh, I think a lot of airlines have really moved more towards just the triple seven A three fifty model of long haul mm-hmm. flying two engines as opposed to four. Yeah. Um, more fuel efficient, economic, mm-hmm. still taking a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of demand for flying out there right now, and I'm sure that's going to continue into next summer. So yeah, I'm happy. I mean, I'm happy to see the A380s back for however long. All right, uh, Tony says I had a walk along the River Tam, Tam, by uh, Thames. Sorry, by Stans today. Stains. Okay. And was amazed how many A380s flew over from Heathrow. Okay, uh, and uh, as uh, Captain Nick on part one uh, had in the in the background, he had his uh, good friend from Australia visiting, and uh, he flew in on 
uh, the, uh, an A380. So Qantas mm-hmm. is uh, is reemploying them and him too, which is oh, a good, good thing. Yeah. Have you ever had the pleasure of flying on an A380, riding as a passenger? I have not. Mm. I know that you have. I have several times. Yeah. Well, she's had a shower show on off. an A380. Yeah, you've even had a shower on a 380. <laughs> I have. I have. Huh. As from a passenger perspective, it's a it's a great airplane. Lots, yeah. It's very spacious. I mean, even even it doesn't matter what class of service you're sitting in. I've done mm-hmm. first business and economy and the economy seats, especially on some of these big long haul carriers. Um, seats are comfortable. You can. It's it's very easy to manage a long flight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, good to see it. Uh, let's see here. Our next one is uh, number five from Texas, Texas and LaShock. All aboard, trains good, planes bad. Woo-hoo. Thank you. Ooh, nice clip. Uh, greetings, is that Captain- our new official uh, uh, theme song and slogan? <laughs> I actually stole that from uh, No Agenda podcast. Okay. I hope that they don't okay. mind. Uh, greetings, Captain Jeff and APG crew. This has been a somewhat unusual year in that I haven't had to fly anywhere. Usually by this point, I've had at least one job out of or one job out of state, and there was supposed to be one, but it keeps getting punched back. For my personal travel, I usually usually fly out to California, but this time, for once, Amtrak was actually cheaper than the airlines, so that was the option I went with, and I thought I'd share my impressions and comparisons with flying. First off, the train was two hours late. We were supposed to leave out of Alpine, Texas at 10:30 a.m., but the train didn't even arrive until almost one. That aside, it doesn't have the usual hassle of getting through airport security. Yeah, and while they do not, they do have a notice about justice. Uh, what? What'd you say? Oh, you're talking to Poppy again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that aside, it doesn't have the usual hassle of getting through airport security. And while they do have a notice about just to carry on items, it doesn't look like they enforce that too much. And you can bring your own food on board. Uh, a necessity for a trip that takes almost a day and you don't want to resort to the onboard cafe. It helps that they are not as concerned with weight and don't have to worry about having everything stowed for takeoff and landing. The seats look quite similar to airline seating, but they are larger, have more space between them, and have a much wider recline. They also have a retractable leg rest to give it a little easier to give it a little easier to lie down and get some sleep. Okay. And there are outlets everywhere for all your devices. I was traveling coach, so I didn't experience a sleeper car. And that also excluded me from the dining car. Coach passengers have to make do with what's available in the cafe on the lower deck of the lounge car. It stocks a variety of snacks and drinks, non-alcoholic and otherwise, and a number of hot items, though, if you want the best choice, get there soon after a major stop when they restock everything. In that vein, in El El Paso, there's a lady who apparently meets the trains as they arrive and sells burritos. They're pretty good, though they're $3 a piece and she only takes cash. But she seems to do enough business that the conductors know her by name. That's a pretty good price, I think. Three bucks. Three dollars for a burrito. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I'd figure out how to have three dollars in cash. Yeah, absolutely. My question is, if the train actually stops, or she just kind of like runs alongside <laughs> and like chucks burritos at people, and they That's like it. throw cash at her. <laughs> yeah, that just goes flying. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I bet no, they I, probably stop. They yeah. have a stop in El Paso. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I hear it's a you know. Well. It, some what, small some small border town or something. I don't yeah, know. when I was uh, taking the train a couple of summers ago, 
um, we actually stopped in El Paso. Uh, so. And now Liz is singing <laughs> in the West Texas town of El Paso. <laughs> sounds, little, sounds lovely, Liz. Thank you. Not distracting. A big drawback on such a long trip, though I imagine long 12-plus hour flight. <laughs> yes, perfect. That's for me, actually. <laughs> I, I did make that for you, but I know. in this case, it applies to Liz as well. We're talking about a graphic that was just thrown up there, and I'll have to make sure that I put that up there in the chapter images for everybody yes. to enjoy. Um, okay. So uh, a big drawback on such a long trip is keeping yourself occupied. Hmm. I would never have that problem. I mean, I can think of a lot of things to do to keep yourself occupied. I'll bet you could. Um, (laughs) On most domestic flights, one nap can – I don't really know what that means, sorry. Uh, One nap can take up most of the time leaving just takeoff and landings, which are more interesting to watch. The train, this one at least, doesn't offer much to see. West Texas and southern New Mexico aren't really known for their spectacular vistas. What are you talking about? I know. You can see for miles and miles. Well, I'm thinking he's probably thinking it's just not really pretty to look at, but it's kind of pretty and it's it's pretty in a stark, like yeah, you know. I I agree. West Texas. Southern New Mexico kind of Southern New Mexico type. Um, So let's see. There. uh, By the time we got to Arizona, it was dark. I mean, dark. There were absolutely no light sources at all along that stretch. So if it weren't for the constant rocking and swaying of the train, you wouldn't be able to tell we were moving at all. So make sure you have movies, games, or work you need to get done. Hey, start a podcast. You'll always have work to do. Mm-hmm. That's true. Sleeping on the train is all right. If you're tired enough, you can sleep just about anywhere. But for me, the seats were a little difficult to find a comfortable position. I kept winding up with a gap between the seat and my lower back that could make it sore after a while. And I had a tendency to slide down if I didn't have my fleet planted on the footrest. And through it all, we were at the mercy of Union Pacific. Amtrak does not own their own rails, except I think they do along the New York to Washington, D.C. area. So whenever one of the Union Pacific's or one of Union Pacific's own trains was on track and there was no way around them, we had to wait for the freight train to clear before we could go. I also noticed on my trip, um, this is just speaking, um, that uh, like the, the, the bridges and stuff like that, there's usually... You had to wait for a while, and mm. the freight trains seemed to have priority. priority. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, back to uh, Texas and Lashock. Overall, it was a decent trip. One day I might have to try the sleeper rooms, though that still is more than a flight in most cases. I guess he's talking about expense-wise. Mm. If given the choice, I think uh, I will still go for flying first, but the train does make for a less hurried means of travel. I've taken some shorter trips in the past where it is great in areas where you can use it to get from one town to the next. In my case, we had to drive two and a half hours just to get to the train station. The airport is 20 minutes away, and MAF usually doesn't have much of a security bottleneck. Anyway, what is MAF? I had to look. Hold on. I don't know. Um, middle. Um, middle of F. Middle of F. She'll figure it out. Anyway, those are my it thoughts. Is Midland, Odessa, maybe? Midland International. There we go. In Midland, See, Texas. I was right. Yeah. Way to go, Liz. Anyway. Ding. Those are. Oh, okay. She wants me to do this. There you go. That's for Liz. Uh, she's easily satisfied. The airport. Yeah, ain't that the truth. Uh, <laughs> anyway, 
those are my thoughts after having experienced an overnight train ride. Wishing you all blue skies, clear blue skies. This is Texas Amleshock signing off. Okay, well, that's interesting. Talking about a train on a aviation podcast. But anyway. Hey, you know, sometimes it's nice to have those oh, comparing yeah, contrasts. Just to make yeah. sure that we've gotten into the right, you know, area of emphasis. Yeah. To be, yeah, I mean, yeah. sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Sounds like not something I would see myself doing anytime soon because it really just comes for me it just comes down to time yeah right you don't have um, enough time as it i don't is. have enough time to but maybe you know someday when i'm retired mm-hmm. and would like to see a lot of the country and have time to get off the train and stay someplace and then get back on the train or and get off on the train get um, off on the train there's so... been an interesting conversation about the train equivalent of the mile high club happening in the chat room see what you're missing out if you're well how do you do a mile not, high uh, is there a train that goes up like oh yeah no, no, just denver. the train equivalent of the mile high club. what if you're right like going through the denver area that's uh, oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Phil, that would work, phil timmer, that would work. Good um, phil timmer uh the knee high club <laughs> okay <laughs> just i'm any. not sure if i can say eye hall boxes uh suggested for the name of the club <laughs> Any, you know, uh, so. what, uh, the club where people get railed, hmm. but not nailed. Hmm. Derailed? Anyway, well, we're going off the tracks here. <laughs> um, but I, I did do the, uh, I had the sleeper car uh, experience and it was, uh, I think, two nights, three days and then uh, overnight in New Orleans in a, in a hotel and then took the one day trip from New Orleans back to Atlanta. I can say that um, I have checked that box mm-hmm. and i probably will never never do it again try to do that again yeah <laughs> just you, you know. know i really you know i, I agree with texas and Lushak here where it's very nice to get on the airplane take off take a short nap you've arrived at your destination mm-hmm. you know it's just it's like time travel a little bit unless yeah. you're the one flying the airplane maybe you don't take a nap i mean it is cool um you know but yeah. It's different. Yeah, it's different. You have to be very unhurried. You have to be enjoying probably the scenery. You mm-hmm. probably should have a couple good books to read or friends that are on the journey with you. And you can imagine like sitting in like, you know, a lounge car and, you know, having friends. coffee and go through the Canadian chatting with your friends. Train. That's nice. Yeah. I don't know. Reading a newspaper, smoking a cigar, what? like big. Reading a what? I don't know. Newspaper? They still do those? I don't think <laughs> they so. They still have those. <laughs> That's one thing I've noticed in the last few years. It used to be on all of our hotel layovers. I mean, there were newspapers out USA in the USA Today, like under the door. Like, you know, like when you go off the elevator, that little area. Uh-huh. They usually have a little table. And table they have like a stack newspapers. of newspapers. Yeah, I have not seen that in quite a long time. I think it was anyway. declining and then COVID killed it. Yeah, I think COVID did put the kibosh on it. Uh, let's see. This is from Gary. Uh, Vietnamese pilot skills among reasons for thousands of delayed flights, according to On Dui. Uh, um, this is from the. What is this from? Uh, hang on. I got I it. No I idea. got it. Note info. It's from. Oh, it's from Gary Kuna. <laughs> That didn't tell me. Anyway, it's from some publication. Um, And Vietnamese pilots have occupied runways longer than needed while airplanes were not parked in order, causing thousands of of delays in June, aviation authorities said. More than 5,600 flights operated by Vietnamese airlines were delayed last month, according accounting for 18.2% of total services operated by the country's six carriers, according to the Civil Aviation Authority of Vietnam, CAAV. 
the figure was up 15.9% year on year and up 9.4% from last month. Low cost carrier Vietjet Air had the industry's highest rate of flight delays at 24%, followed by Viet- Vietnam Airlines with 20.1%. Uh, in most cases, flights were delayed at Tan San Nhat International Airport in Ho Chi Minh City. Nailed it. Ho Min, th- uh, thank you. Uh, Ho Min, right. Uh huh. Nailed it. Uh, Ho Min Tan, uh, deputy head of CAAV, said the issue of delayed flights at Tan San Nhat is quite serious as he attended a Wednesday meeting on, this, on the matter. Uh, he said, apart from overloaded infrastructure, the arrangement of parked aircraft is not reasonable as planes that take off first are located far from the runway while those departing later are placed closer. Is he just talking about Charlotte? <laughs> they yeah. <really> might be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're, uh, they're very similar, I think. The, there uh, were cases in which a plane spent as long as 15 to 20 minutes only to move from the parking lot to the runway. Well, 15 to 20 minutes is not well, that Well, what is the new... airplane doing in the parking lot? That's I don't know. Odd. That might be part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, but here's the gist of the, uh, the reason why I think uh, uh, Gary we'll sent this in. Always blame the pilots. Uh, uh-huh. Bui, Bui Tan Ha. Head of the Air Traffic Control Department of Southern Region Air Traffic Service said another reason for this issue was pilot skills in the latest survey how, conducted. How like air traffic control to blame the pilots for these delays, know. isn't it? Jeez. Right? In the latest survey conducted at the airport of Singapore, Airlines plane left the runway in 60 seconds after landing, while Vietnamese pilots needed nearly 70 seconds. That's like 10 seconds longer. Oh, my God. During takeoff, air traffic controllers have to calculate to save every second through Vietnamese pilot, though... Vietnamese pilots still spend 10 to 15 seconds on average to start running. It's clear that our pilots do not have an awareness of saving time, said Ha! Uh, Din Viet Sun, another CAAV deputy head, said if there were heavy downpours at uh, the airport and airplanes cannot land, air traffic controllers should decide not to let airplanes designated to land at Tan San Nhat depart. Oh, yeah, because in that case... You know, there's no room for the airplanes that are land. I guess they don't have any extra excess capacity or whatever. It sounds like it's like a very the perhaps the airport is kind of locked in by surrounding community stuff happening city and probably not a lot of room for expansion. So they're just working with what they got. Yeah. And so, you know, as a pilot, uh, you don't want to be rushed because anytime you try to do things a lot faster and shave off those extra 10 seconds could be uh, a time where you kind of miss something that's important. We've noticed so. that in the podcast, Jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, pardon me, I agree. Liz? We've noticed that when you're doing the You've podcast. You've noticed that when I've you, been doing the podcast. Uh, you don't do rushed well. No, I don't do rushed well. You're right. You're right. Um, so don't rush me. No. All right. Never. Anything else to say, Steph, on that? I no, I okay. I don't know. It just sounds like more issues than uh, it sounds, uh, as we say in medicine, multifactorial. Lots oh, of yeah. things happening, um, you know. And I don't think it's just the uh, piloting skills, and I don't think it's the air traffic control mm-hmm. fault. I think it's the space issue. The it sounds asphalt. like and, and a, it's, a, it's the asphalt. Yes, yeah. I agree with Neil. Um, you deserve an Emmy for getting through that article, and um, I, I commend you on your Vietnamese skills. I didn't know you were so well, skilled in the language. It's uh, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time there. <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever been to Vietnam. <laughs> That's one of those places in Asia I have not been. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe you'll take the RV there. Yeah, but I'll, I'll yeah, I could drive the RV. Wait a minute, 
I could. I could put the RV on a on a, a container ship and have it shipped over there and then drive around. Uh, nah, I probably won't do that. Okay, uh, let's move on to Larry Gregory, the geezer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, he said, uh, Tug, I don't need no stinking tug. And we're going to play a little video here of uh, practice that American Airlines and other airlines used um, when flying the glorious Mad Dog. Go. Sitting at the gate at Dallas-Fort Worth International. And, uh, oh, look, the reversers are popping out. Oh, that's good. You, you, Liz was doing the same exact thing, Steph. Great buddies. Yes. Great Well, I don't know if I'd say that, go that far. But look at that. So it's backing up. I know this is fascinating for the audio only podcast, Mm -hmm. but we do have a link for you to watch the power back of the MD82 or whatever it is, uh, backing up from the gate. They're super 80s. Yeah, the super 80. Yeah, yeah. It's Whisper Jet. I said Whisper Jet. (laughs) Well, now it's quiet now that it's it's, reversing. (laughs) Anyway. I'm curious, how uh, are they just. There's like no marshallers or anything, no wing walkers. It's like I, just, just I, go for it. Just back up and hope you don't run yeah, somebody just, over. They'll get out of the way. Surely they can't see you. Well, I'm thinking that maybe they're there somewhere and we just didn't see them. I saw nobody. Yeah, maybe it's just not a wide enough angle. No, they have to have marshallers out there clearing. You know, you think? Mm, maybe not. I don't know. You know, we're a bunch well, of back cowboys. In, back in the 80s. You know, especially in yeah, Dallas, Fort Worth. Oh yeah, <laughs> those darn cowboys. Anyway, uh, it's it's always a fun thing to uh, watch powerbacks, and I, I think I know I know that I've mentioned this, but hey, if you're you might be new and not heard me say this before, but um, I usually have issues with uh, getting involved in bending metal uh, when I'm backing up, like in in automobiles. <laughs> And uh, my lovely uh, former wife uh, asked uh, very, very politely, uh, honey, I said, yeah. She said, do you have to back up the airplane? And I said, uh, no. She goes, oh, good. <laughs> um, Some honest uh, feedback yeah, there no, your if critique I, of your driving skills. If I had flown for American Airlines, uh, you know, back in the... Back in the nineties, I probably have would be a story to read about you. <laughs> yes, I'm sure of it. Anyway, so uh, there you go. Thank you, Larry, for that. And Robert let's move on to oh, Robert again in Tucker, again. Georgia. Yeah. Um let's He's see got here. <laughs> usually when i watch one of these air disasters episodes i search for online details of these events oh the title is salvaged airframe parts allegedly led to haunted future flights yeah i should have read that (laughs) vegan with and then i would then i could have gone like this <laughs> okay, you get the picture. Um, yeah. Usually, when I watch one of these air disasters episodes, I search for online details of these events. This particular story jumped out at me. 
without a phantom dead pilot, by the way. So I thought I would share with the... Oh, our phantom pilot's not dead yet. I'm not um, dead yet. He's um, getting there. So I thought I would share with the still alive crew in case you all had not seen this. Over the following months and years, stories began circulating that employees of Eastern Airlines and numerous passengers had reported sightings of the dead crew members, Captain Robert Loft and the second officer, uh, flight engineer Donald Repo, uh, or Repo, setting, sitting on board other L-1011s, including, in particular, November 318 uh, Echo Alpha for Eastern Airlines. These stories speculated that parts of the crashed aircraft were salvaged after the investigation and refitted into other L-1011s. The reported hauntings were said to be seen only on the planes that used those spare parts. Hmm. Hmm. Gossip regarding the sighting of the uh, spirits of Don Repo and Bob Loft spread throughout Eastern Airlines to the point where Eastern's management warned employees that they could face dismissal if they were caught spreading ghost stories. While Eastern Airlines publicly denied their planes were haunted, they reportedly removed all the salvaged parts from their L-1011 fleet <laughs> over over time. Take, take no chances. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, you know, that's absolutely not happening. Uh, no. Let's go ahead and remove all of those. Who's going to call? Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, over time, the reporting of ghost sightings stopped. An original floorboard from Flight 401 remains in the archives at History. Miami in South Florida. Pieces of Flight 401's wreckage can also be found in Ed and Lorraine Warren's Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. Well, you didn't go there with your RV. Hmm. Yeah, I do need to go there in my RV, Liz. You're right. Anyway, Ed and Lorraine Warren's Occult Museum? Yeah. Or yeah. the History yeah. of Miami? Both. Both. Yes. Both of them. Both of them. Not the same yeah. day. Anyway, the uh, Flight 401, you all probably remember, was the one that crashed in the uh, Everglades, right? Well, so. they were uh, troubleshooting a yeah. gear light that was out. A light bulb. Light yeah. bulb. Yeah. Yeah, not a good, not a not good great. outcome there. Nope. Okay. Thank you, Robert. I had not seen that, and that was an interesting story. Um, speaking of interesting, um, we need to play this. We're going green. We're going green. We're going to take care of the earth. We're going green. Yeah. Hi, crew. I was recently poking around aviation. Okay, that's enough. We're going green. Okay, thank you. Uh, I wish you wouldn't poke so much. It's yeah, well, I don't know. Sometimes poking is okay. fine. I was recently poking around aviation news articles online and found this piece. <laughs> Rather interesting, I'd say. It almost... <sighs> Seems like a solution that engineers should have figured out a long time ago, given how logical it is. I, I think there's some sarcasm I should be using in the, the way I'm explaining or reading this. I'm definitely glad that a major airline has decided to adopt such technology, nonetheless. Just wanted to hear your opinions and thoughts on e-jet fuel. I will point out, though, that this current name they've dubbed uh, might interestingly run into copyright issues with Embraer's E-Jet family trademark. Hmm. Uh, they're all E-Jets. Keep up the lovely and entertaining shows each week. Josh from SoCal. He says, brown what skies and wind shear. Shoot, I keep on messing that up. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what a bunch of Egypts. What a bunch of Egypts. Ah, uh, I get it. You're such an Egypt. <laughs> uh, E-Jet. It is, uh, Liz. Okay, so the so here's the interesting article uh, from Alaska Airlines News. Uh, Alaska Airlines, Microsoft, and 12 partner, no, 
Alaska Airlines, Microsoft, and 12 partner to advance new form of sustainable aviation fuel. Now, I know it's kind of hard to see on the screen there, but uh, again, uh, check out the show notes and you can get a little bit closer view of this um, this graphic regarding e-jet fuel. Um, so aviation is all about journeys to visit family, great adventures, to do business at Alaska. We're also on a journey to improve our impact on the environment. And we've set ambitious goals to measure our progress with a long-term target of zero carbon emissions by 2040. But we know we can't do it alone. Succeeding in this journey requires new solutions and great partners. Today, they're excited to kick off a new partnership they have with Microsoft and 12, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so what is uh, this all about? Uh, They talk about uh, sustainable aircraft fuel and so basically they're recapturing carbon dioxide somehow and turning that into fuel yeah so that's the part that they really don't go into a lot of detail it's all we we recapture the carbon dioxide and fuel (laughs) magic (laughs) (laughs) yeah but but how do they do that well i'm sure they're not going to say it because they're going to patent it and trademark it and copyright it and sell it for lots of money probably uh, maybe it's like one of those machines that the ghostbusters used so let's see uh, maybe i don't know our core technology is an yeah. electrochemical reactor with a proprietary catalyst that electrifies co2 and transforms it into new products our technology uses co2 captured from the air and using only water and renewable electricity Hmm. Uh, I wonder what the renewable electricity is. Transforms that coal powered, yes. Uh, transforms that CO2 into carbon monoxide and hydrogen, um, which we use to produce carbon neutral jet fuel. Yeah, I wonder how much of uh, the sustainable electrical energy renewable they have. electricity. Renewable electricity. They're, they were very vague on what they How their much renewable, do they renewable. have to use to make this work? That's mm-hmm. what I'd be interested to find out. Anyway, yeah. well, hey, I, I welcome the um, yeah, you know, I hope the attempts it works. and the ingenuity, and let's yeah. keep working on these things because surely we're smart enough to do better. Yeah, as a species, not me personally. Well, you could do better too, stuff. Okay, let's. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. No way. I could. Nobody. Nobody does it better than you. Uh, we got some feedback from uh, Mariano. Uh, regarding American Airlines' multiple failures discussed on episode 529. So um, he, he sent us uh, two uh, audio things, so I'm going to play one right after the other. So here we go. Mariano, and where would you think uh, he'd be you know, coming in from? Somewhere in South America. You think so? Yeah. Or well, Spain? Let's, let's listen. South America. Hey, guys. It's Captain Mariano here from the UK. Um, or the UK. Giving you some <laughs> feedback on APG... Uh, 529, specifically the um, American Airlines multiple failures on the Airbus 321. I fly the Airbus 320, and I'm an instructor and a simulator for um, a big conglomerate here. And when I heard your show and I saw the uh, failures they had, immediately I thought about um, double slap flaps control computer failure. So... When we have that in the 320, it's a few things that happen. Um, the first one is that the uh, flaps or slats lock, uh, and then you lose characteristic speeds because the aircraft doesn't know what configuration it's in. So it, you lose the uh, VMO, uh, 
you lose the lower end of the speed scale as well because the aircraft is not able to display correctly. Uh, however, you don't lose the actual um, speed. It's not an air data issue. It's just a limitations display issue that we get with that fault. Um, it is quite difficult because we end up having to hand fly the airplane. We lose autopilot. We lose auto thrust. We lose the flight directors. And it's very, very challenging. Especially for Airbus pilots. So if I was a betting man, I, I would say, say that. that that's what that I American Airlines flight suffered from. <laughs> Double slats, flaps, control computer, fault. And in a blink of an eye, you lose the autopilot, the autothrust, flight directors. Um, your airspeed uh, display loses all the characteristics, airspeeds, all the limitations. They're all gone. Uh, it can be very, very, very confusing when it happens. And also your flaps and slats uh, lock as well. Hmm. So that also makes it a bad day for you. Hmm. Uh, we'll have to wait for the final report to corroborate whether that's exactly what happened, but if um, it really does sound like that. Anyway, thank you guys. Thank you for the show. And listen every week. Keep the blue side up and uh, headwinds for all your landings, tailwinds for your cruise. Perfect, Mariano. And so nice to have people listening that actually you know, know, know what they're planes. talking about and knows yeah. the planes you you know and the instructor. You know, instructor over there for the uh, did you very play both audio i did i played both of oh, them good. it was oh, seamless was liz wasn't it that was very seamless. yeah i'm impressed um but uh anyway so that's that's uh, thank you for the clarification so that yet yeah, would be disorienting but at least you still have your airspeed it just don't you don't have all those little bugs that mm-hmm. show you all the important speeds and such so. and it's a, it's a lot that changes all at once it sounds like just all of a sudden yeah know, so you have to think through what's happened does phil timmer thinks he's he's a funny guy or something blue side down in jeff's case it's i just think you're an aerobatic pilot oh okay well then that sounds like a compliment thank you phil all right um, and thank you, Mariano, for taking the time to uh, do those recordings. And uh, we'd love to hear from you again um, to help help us with these things uh, on airplanes that we don't really know much about. Captain Nick needs all the help he can get. Yes, Cap- I mean Captain Nick, you know, thinks he's knows what he's talking about, but he doesn't anymore. He he is a uh, font of information, but he is a know, font it- for sure. When it comes to, you know, <laughs> he hasn't flown that, that particular means. airplane. So, no, he hasn't. Now, I, we'll, cut him, it, we'll cut him a little slack there. Now, Nick, Captain Nick, if you're listening, you know I'm just kidding. I love you, man. I do. Phil really Timmer good. is clarifying his uh, comment. Phil on the uh, oh, retreat there. Oh, the Acme livery. Oh, okay. All right. I'll cut you some slack then, Philip. Thank you. So, Larry, uh, the geezer from Tulsa, Oklahoma, is back. Hey, I, you know what? I think I might actually have a layover in Tulsa next month. Nice. Um, you know, I'll call you. Um, anyway, the uh, let's see. Why don't you throw up this uh, – <laughs> throw up. Uh, I have no idea how this photo leaked out. And uh, so it, it's a um, – the uh, display screen of a flight management system computer, or ACARS actually, I think in this case. And uh, it's um, – Let's see, uh, an ACARS free text uh, to dispatch the uh, chemtrail mix, mind control select, population control select, mass steriliza- sterilization select. So I guess you can select whichever kind of mix 
you want uh, when you put the chemtrails out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's uh, kind of depends. A, on, I guess it depends on where you're flying. You know what the yeah. real problem for that particular area is. Right. You know, if it's an overpopulation problem, you've got a couple of things there to to do that. If it's a free thinkers problem, it's like that first one. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, so population control, I guess, would be like instant death, and then mass sterilization yeah. would be just a eventual future, eventual. Uh, future yeah. extinction. Okay. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a quick, you know, event or a kind of a slow linger. Yeah. I kind of like those slow lingers myself. Mm. All right. Um, <laughs> oh, Phil is in uh, Atlanta for training. Cool. Maybe uh, maybe we can get together if you're not busy, Philip. Um, all righty. Let's uh, continue on with uh, Moshe. I saw this guy at, mm, at Oshkosh. Uh, Oshkosh during the uh, the live show. With his oh, whole nice. family. Yeah, his whole family uh, from Israel. Wow. Anyway, cool. um, multiple pilots on the flight deck. Dear Captains Jeff and Nick and everybody else, I love your show and always appreciate all the blood, sweat, and tears you put into making each episode. That being said, for the first time ever, I must disagree <gasps> with something I heard on the show. On a recent episode, you claimed that uh, Liz. Would you make sure that uh, he's on the um, the the already done list? Okay, thank you. Um, On a recent episode, you claimed that having three or four pilots on the flight deck will always result in a better outcome in case of an emergency. You may be surprised to learn that this may have inadvertently reduced the APG accuracy rating to below fifty percent. And I'll explain why here. Oh, there it is. <laughs> it's up on the on the screen below 50 percent. Uh, the fact is, in today's cockpits, uh, let's see, today's cockpits are designed to be operated by two pilots. And that is how crews are trained to operate. OK, I agree. The very presence of extra flight crew members on the flight deck can actually reduce the level of safety for a number of reasons. Extra pilots are a distraction. They can distract the operating crew from speaking either with them or amongst themselves or by unnecessarily commenting on the operation of the flight. I agree. Most airlines have no standard operating procedures or CRM, uh, crew resource management guidelines in place for more than two pilots. Asking additional crew members to operate radios or other systems is essentially going into uncharted territory as the crew have not been trained to coordinate such activities amongst themselves. Operating in a different manner than you're used to and how you've practiced in the simulator is usually not a good idea. Okay. Uh, having extra pilots on the flight deck introduces a whole slew of psychological effects on the operating crew, which absolutely affect their performance. Studies show that a crew member will usually perform better in the presence of an observer or supervisor if the operation's normal. However, there will be a degradation of performance when the pilots are required to handle abnormal or emergency situations with other pilots watching them. Another bias faced by the operating crew is that of social loafing or complacency. The pilots at the controls may let their guard, uh, let down their guard, and become less vigilant, since with so many qualified professionals in the cockpit, surely somebody is sure to notice something out of the ordinary. Uh, he said, "There's much more to say about this subject, and I encourage you to read a fascinating article about it in the Practical Aviation website, practicalaviation.com/afcm." Just a disclaimer: I did have the honor of participating in writing this article. <laughs> Uh-huh. But don't take my word for it. I assure you that the other authors are smarter than me and know what they're talking about. 
Finally, I'm planning on bringing my family to Oshkosh next week. Of course, yeah, we've re- received this before Oshkosh. God willing and non-rev permitting, and very much hope we can meet in person and get some free APG t-shirts. See you there, Moshe from Israel. And, did he uh, get t-shirts? He did, I think. I, I, we had the t-shirts on the on the back of the chairs uh, for people to grab, so I'm hoping that he and his family got some of those shirts. Yes. And uh, it was nice seeing him. And the fam in uh, in Oshkosh, and didn't get a chance to really spend a lot of time talking with Moshe, uh, especially about this. But both uh, Captain Nick and and I did um, uh, answer or reply to his uh, his feedback uh, privately. And uh, you know, I, I see the points made there. I think for me, I and I don't, I'm not sure about Nick because. Um, I think that you're for ne- you're Nick, never sure about Nick. I'm never sure about Nick. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I was kind of thinking in my my anecdotal experience of flying two uh, uh, two airplanes in my career that were were designed for three pilot or crew members up there. In the case of Acme, most of the time the flight engineers on the L-1011 and the 727 were also rated pilots. Not always, but usually. Um, but three crew members in the cockpit. And when we went from three to two, I was always thinking that it felt like it was a safer operation with having, you know, an extra set of eyes and ears and another brain uh, to help the situation. But I, I see the argument against, um, you know, having tried somebody help you out with the radios or a PA or coordinating something with the company while you're going through an abnormal situation. So I guess, yeah, I guess looking at a couple of different ways though. So in that situation, that's at the time required crew members. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the aircraft required the flight engineer. Mm-hmm. Right. So your, your training, um, things that you were doing in the simulator all had that person there, the way your CRM and your flows were set up were to include that third person, even though at some point you went down to two people. So in that sense, probably, you know, um, maybe not safer, but uh, an equally safe situation in terms of how things are going to proceed in the event of an emergency. Um, There are certainly um, instances out there where I can think of where adding a third person into an abnormal, highly unusual, catastrophic situation because of their particular expertise had been helpful. I'm thinking of United um, Sioux City uh, Mm -hmm. 233. Or 232, uh, 232, 232, 232. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, were they, um, uh, gosh, was he a, a training? In, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think he was a training department instructor. Department instructor, you know, he happened to be in the back and they brought mm-hmm. him up and was able to, um, just basically work the power for them while they were able to do different troubleshooting things and flying the aircraft and dealing with all the, the issues there. That's a very unusual situation, but. In that case, okay. though, he he was qualified. Qualified. To, so I think to, we're still talking about yeah. qualified people to be there. You know, we're talking right. about, say, it's someone, you know, someone on your jump seat who flies the aircraft that you fly, an extra person there. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, you're not used to having that third person there to go through abnormal situations with you. So in that case, is it more of a distraction? Um, I'm not sure. I think it probably depends on who's there, you know. Yeah. Um, I think in some cases you could very well make the point that it is, and in other cases it might very much be a benefit. Depends on the nature of the abnormal situation. Depends on the personalities of the people involved. Exactly. And it also has a lot to do with the way the commander or captain 
manages that right. all the resources in the cockpit but i can see the pitfalls as well um, and i absolutely believe that having an extra crew member in the cockpit is can be and usually is a, a somewhat of a of a distraction so um yeah so it can definitely be i mean you know and and anyone who's a the private pilot out there flies GA aircraft, um, knows the distraction of having someone sitting up front with you who's not a rated pilot, um, or who maybe is, um, maybe is, but is, you know, quite a chatty person and um, can easily uh, distract you from what you're doing. But if if you're the pilot in command, you know, you need to set the expectations for how the flight goes. Um, you know, that starts from the point of getting that person in the airplane, showing them how everything works, what they need to do, seatbelt operation. Um, if I have someone riding in the right seat with me while I'm flying, you know, it's it's a very standard brief to them in terms of what the expectations are, all the way from, uh, you know, if we're going to start the engine and the engine shut down, um, as to even when they can exit the aircraft. <laughs> um, but once we're in the air, and, and I do tell people sitting in the right seat, flying with me that if they see something that they're not sure about to please speak up, whether it's another airplane in the sky that I haven't said anything about, whether it's, um, you know, if they can see a giant flock of birds or something that they're not sure I saw, please let me know about that. Um, if there's something that pops up, an indicator light, you know, don't freak out, don't touch anything, but just say, hey, what's that? Yeah. You know, you can draw my attention to the things. I don't have an ego about it. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I always brief that. Say, so, hey, you know, you're 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 part of the crew. You know, I don't, not really, but not you know, formally. But but if you see something, say something. You know, if if don't don't yeah, be don't, afraid don't to be say idle something if because something you think, oh, right. I'm just an idiot because I don't really fly this airplane. So you know, they must have everything under control, or they must see that flashing light over there or whatever, you know, just, you know, help. Or as you said, birds, flock of birds, you know, that they may see because of their position in the, you know, looking out the windscreen that we may not, that sort of thing is, is, is helpful. But, um, but, uh, and I haul boxes makes a really good point here on the jump seat. It's mostly better to shut up unless for safety, you need to speak up. And that is always my, mm -hmm. Uh, the way I behave as well, because I'm thinking, I don't want to be a distraction. I don't want to just be yakking about all this stuff that uh, could be a, could, could so be. So this issue. is also setting expectations too. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if uh, you know, I'm thinking more for GA pilots. If uh, if you set the expectation, like, hey, I'm going to give you plenty of time to talk and ask questions and do things, but please don't say anything until I tell you to, unless you think it's a safety concern or it's something that I may not have noticed because I'm going to be busy on takeoff. I might have to talk to um, a controller. I'm going to be busy on approach and landing. Those are not the times to have idle conversation. Um, I'll let you know when it's a good time not to be rude about it, but there's, there's good times to talk and not so good times to talk. I can't tell you how many times I've been with Steph in, in real life. And she says, Jeff, I don't Jeff, want you to up. talk Just unless I, up. you know, ask you to say something. I say, Would yes, yes ma'am. shut up? Yeah. 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 Uh, Phil has an interesting point about flying jumpers. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Neil Amworm says, I'm imagining the two old guys from the Muppets commenting from the back. Awful. Rubbish. Get your license from a cornflakes box. Sorry, it's hard for me to read that because it's such a tiny little window I'm looking at. I think I got that right. <laughs> you did. Um, Perfect. All right. Um, very funny. <laughs> um, 
No, we're actually, yes, Phil, Phil said something about flying jumpers. I'm going to respond to okay. real quick because I can speak to that. So when I used to fly jumpers, the nervous ones would always reach for the right control column and or throttle, uh, throttle quadrant. One time I relented and let a jumper hold on to the carb, <laughs> carb head knob. Um, yeah, it, it, so occasionally we do have jumpers sitting in the, the right seat, depending on loading of the aircraft, or um, sometimes if we have bulkier passengers, like a lot of wing suitors or something, you know, we need we need extra space in the back, so someone will sit in the right seat. Um, our, our local community of jumpers is pretty well briefed on what to do and not to do inside the airplane. But again, if you have someone sitting up front, um, you have 30 seconds before you take off, um, take the time to brief them on expectations. So, hey, you know, these are not things for you to touch. If you see something that you're not sure about, please speak up and let me know. You know, I'll address it and we'll make sure that everything is safe. I can't tell you how many times she said that to me too. Please don't um, touch. Yeah, there. Yeah. Don't touch. <laughs> no touching. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, let's see. Well, thank you, Moshe from uh, Israel. Uh, for the feedback and thank you Steph for your perspective it's always uh, an interesting thing I think um, Robert again Robert wow Robert is just like killing it He's on like, the show yeah floodgates like, are open for yeah. feedback for, for I think but these are these have been over time though he's probably spaced these out nice and he's probably given up on sending us feedback yeah, at this yeah, point because yeah, he figured that we were never going he's to probably get to not these. even listening to the show anymore <laughs> yeah I guess they don't like my feedback uh, I think the crew has covered some of the newer supersonic plane development projects but not sure if you mentioned this back in the 60s uh, we weren't doing the podcast in the 60s Robert so no we did not mention it oh, I wasn't even uh, alive in the 60s <laughs> Uh, I was. I was. Yeah. <laughs> Liz and I were. Okay. Oklahoma City's population was perceived to be relatively tolerant of such an experiment as it had an economic dependency on the nearby Mike Monroney Aeronautical Center and Tinker Air Force Base. We're talking about Oklahoma City sonic boom tests. Uh, in fact, the local Chamber of Commerce threw a celebratory dinner, celebratory dinner when Oklahoma was selected. However, in the first 14 weeks, 147 windows in the city's two tallest buildings, the First National Bank and Liberty National Bank, were broken. And then he uh, has a link to a Wikipedia article about the Oklahoma City sonic boom tests. And uh, they called this, uh, also known as Operation Bongo 2, <laughs> a reference uh, to a – or to refer to a controversial experiment organized by the FAA – in which 1,253 sonic booms were generated over Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, over a period of six months, uh, starting in February 1964. The experiment was intended to quantify the effects of transcontinental supersonic transport aircraft on a city to measure the boom's effect on structures and public attitude and to develop standards for boom prediction and insurance data. Um, Anyway, the the article goes on to talk about how they conducted the tests and how uh, how strong the booms were. I guess they had a way of controlling that. Um, they started off kind of with light sonic booms, and then they got stronger and stronger. And um, yeah, as we mentioned, or as he mentioned in his uh, feedback, uh, in the first fourteen weeks, one hundred and forty seven windows. And the city's two tallest buildings were broken. 
And uh, then, you know, basically uh, the, the citizens of Oklahoma City uh, started to uh, lose their patience and they were complaining to the FAA. So much for being tolerant of Yeah, such they were an tolerant at first. But I think the thing that was hardest for them to deal with was the fact that they'd, they'd, they'd send these complaints to the FAA and the FAA would go, well, yeah, no, that doesn't qualify for, uh, you know, insurance replacement or whatever, you know, go, oh. go get a life, you know, like they were not very responsive and 147 windows later. Yeah. yeah. They, uh, let's see. Um, only, let's see about 3% of the population telephoned, sued or wrote protest letters. But Oklahoma City surgeons and hospitals filed no complaints. However, with the city population at 500,000, that 3% figure represented 15,000 upset individuals. There were 9,594 complaints of damage to buildings, 4,629 formal damage claims, and 229 claims for a total of 12,800,000. Was that no? That's only twelve thousand eight hundred and forty-five dollars and thirty-two cents. Uh, yeah, on, but sure I that is. But in that's the sixties, nineteen sixties dollars today. That would be like a billion, I think. Probably no, maybe not. Maybe not that much. What is uh, I hall boxes? Not okay, city. <laughs> Good point. It's Normally cute. it's okay, city, but in this case, not okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so here it is. The uh, uh, the FAA cavalier manner of dismissing claims and began demanding frequent reports from the anyway so they finally squashed the project and said okay that's enough we've we've bothered these people way too much and interestingly uh the negative publicity associated with the test partially influenced the 1971 cancellation of the boeing 2707 project and led to the united states complete withdrawal from sst design did not know that i'd never heard of these tests actually Mm-mm, not familiar. I am now. Yeah. So, Jeff, you've got about five minutes left. Why don't we end off with Texas Charlie, the next one, and then we'll... I think that's a great idea, Liz. We're going to end with... Is it the next one here? Yes. Okay, we're going to end the show with uh, feedback. Oh, on a medical 15. note. Yes, it's a med- we get your medical expertise here, <coughs> Dr. Steph, because you're used to uh, dealing with... Uh, um, what do you call these things? Um, x-rays. x-rays. Thank you. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Texas Charlie uh, writes, finally, real evidence. After millions of dollars spent and years of research, biomedical scientists have finally found solid evidence that airline pilot guy syndrome is a real neurological disorder. (laughs) Please wear your mask while listening to the show and take zinc for immune system support. And... uh, Again, well, if you're, I'm going to stick to the go around of psilocin. I think that's the think recommended so? uh, treatment. Okay, 30, well, there's a, 36 easy daily doses. Yes. I think, and some stomach cramps. We are displaying a, an X-ray, a photo of an X-ray of um, somebody's brain, and uh, yes, definitely clear evidence of APG syndrome. And uh, I think so. That cervical spine looks pretty good, actually. Does it? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what do you bad. look for there? Nice, evenly spaced and nice gaps? Uh, even and spacing kind of and, uh, you know, it's it's not exactly a true lateral view. So, like really um, But from what I can see there, it looks pretty good. I can see even spacing, good spacing in between the actual vertebrae where the discs sit and their joints don't appear to have a lot of uh, bony overgrowth or arthritis changes. Alignment is reasonable. It's a little straight. Hmm. I was I was thinking the same thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, They've had some dental work done. Liz, Liz seems to think that uh, that the neck is kind of a, a long neck, or is that just is that what it normally looks no, like? No, that's what it looks like. Uh, and I can only see six uh, cervical vertebrae there, as opposed to all seven. Oh. But that's okay. just because it's cropped off at the. Well, it's the weight uh, of the aircraft. Bottom. It's. Oh, Liz thinks it might have something to do with the weight of the aircraft in the brain. I think so, actually. Yes, yeah. it's, it's weighing the neck down into the shoulders, and you can't see. The well, talking about weighing, C-7. I'm sure that we're uh, weighing on people's patients uh, that are listening to the show. Uh, but hey, we have uh, some relief for you. We're going to stop, and we're going to uh, yeah. We're going to talk to you about uh, something that we never do. Well, no, we actually do talk about it every week. And we're going to point you over to the Airline Pilot Guy website, airlinepilotguy.com. And you know the you know the spiel. We uh, have information about... Oh, um, Nick Camacho sent um, a bio that I haven't gotten oh. around to uh, putting on the website yet. So but eventually... Sometime in 2023. Yeah, yeah, probably before I retire, maybe, if I have time. We'll, uh, we'll put it up once updated. it gets out of date. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Liz. Um, and uh, other stuff there. So just check out airlinepilotguy.com. It'll be a surprise. You can find all kinds of cool stuff there. Uh, we are also on social media, and um, Steph is going to tell you about that. I will. You can point your browser or your smartphone app to Facebook or facebook.com slash airlinepilotguy. Also on Twitter, we're at APG Crew, and I think all of our individual Twitter handles are pinned to the top of the page. Not sure about Nick C's. Maybe. Hey, maybe, probably, and or not. I'll have to double check that. Yeah. And also on Instagram, we're APG Crew. And if you really want to be involved with the community, take a deep dive, you can check out Slack. And Hillel, I think, is in. Um, Jeff's bathroom, as oh, always. To he always seems to be. So let, me, <laughs> let us know let about it. Turn up the fader. On the uh, yeah, there we go. Hey, hello. Can you tell us about Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay. We're used to it by now, and uh, let's hear what you have to say about it. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right, thanks, Hillel. I appreciate it. All right, well, those little you're gonna things. have to buy some more soap. I yeah, suppose. I have a big box of free soap uh, there on the floor. It. Yeah, leave me some, please. I need it. All right, um, and of course, we want to thank. Uh, she's joined us again in the video here. There is our producer, Liz. Thank you very much for all the hard work. Thanks, guys. So great to have you back. Good to be back. Well, kind of. Well, okay. Don't go into detail. (laughs) And with that, we're going to tell you, uh, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.
I used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly, oh, man, oh Airline 